What is it? It's your future. It's called a Stargate. Chevron 7 locked. Welcome to Walking Through the Stargate. I'm Brent. And I'm Zach. This is episode 152. And we'll be talking about Stargate SG-1's season 7 finale, Lost City, parts 1 and 2. Yay! We're here. This is it. This is so, it. Friends, we're an independent podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash walking through the Stargate. Zach, I just found out that there is a little conference, virtual conference that's happening in a couple of weeks and a different podcast that I listen to. They're going to be guest speakers on it, and they're not even going to be talking about their podcast. They're going to be talking about podcasting in general, and it was funny because they got started about in 2010, I think, oh, and so wow. they consider themselves to be like the grandfathers of podcasting. And while <laughs> and while it is absolutely true that we started our show three years, four years ago, four years ago, almost four, four years. years ago, um, uh, I think I had mentioned at some point that I had been doing podcasting stuff way hey, back in 2006. So if that if they're the grandfathers, then I guess I'm the great grandfather. Hello, children. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so over at patreon.com slash walking through the Stargate. Back in my day, we had to sell ads from the ad council. Um, if you, <laughs> we've got tiers and privileges. Oh boy, <laughs> it's true. Um, <laughs> uh, tiers and privileges and stuff from Patreon. Zach will tell us a bit about that. But uh, one of the things that you would have access to right away are the Patreon first shows that include the other side of the gate, where David and Zach talk about spoilerific things and thematic things, things that I generally am not allowed to listen to if, unless I want to have the story ruined for me. Zach and I also do Stargate Second Chances, where based off your votes, we rewatch certain episodes of Stargate, reanalyze it, take a, take another look at it, understand it within a different context, understand it within its own individual context, and then give it new rankings. Uh, and that's proving to be a lot of fun. And then the uh, third show that we have on there is Stargate Infinity. We lost a bet. The bet we lost was that there was no way we were going to have enough Patreon support to justify this stretch goal, but we were wrong. So uh, we watch episodes of the non-canonical animated series Stargate Infinity. Uh, we're a few episodes, I think four episodes in. And yeah, it's, 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 it's very interesting. And if you say to yourself, that sounds like a bunch of, that's a bunch of hooey, Brent. I don't like having uh, paywall stuff. I am here for the free internet, as in beer and thoughts, and I'm and I say in speech, and I'm like, you know what? I'm there too. So good news, uh, we release stuff from our Patreon feed onto our main feed as we see fit. Usually a little while after we re we record it and release it. Uh, typically when we want to take some breaks. So you're probably going to be getting some more of this stuff here relatively soon. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so, you know, you you can just have that if you don't want to support the show, which is fine. That's a valid choice. Either you can or will not. That's all good. If you have uh, friends in your life that uh, need more Stargate podcast content, uh, you should tell them to listen to us. That's what we should do. You should do. Uh, they can find our show just about everywhere. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, but my uh, speaking of, you know, free speech and free beer, uh, although I pay for my aggregators. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? Use a podcast aggregator. So go get yourself some Pocket Casts or some Overcast or some Stitcher. I don't know if that's a free one or not. Doesn't matter. Do that and then search for Walking Through the Stargate and you'll be able to find our show. And there you'll be. So, Zach. Yeah, Brett. If a person wants to let us know 
that uh, they have done all of that. They have supported the show on Patreon. They have not supported the show on Patreon and waited for our shows patiently. They have subscribed to our uh, uh, podcasts on both a- on all Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify Podcasts, and have downloaded aggregators, many of them, and subscribed to the show in all of those aggregators, and told their friends where to find our show. How might they? How might they let us know that they've done all that? So, if you are what we call a super fan of the <laughs> Supergate or whatever, Supergates, <laughs> um, you can email us at walkingthroughthestargate at gmail.com and let us know how you are a super fan of the Supergate stuff. of the super of the superness of the superness. Uh, you can do that by emailing us at walkingthroughthestargate@gmail.com. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Stargate Walking, because if you've done all of that, you should be doing this too. That's that is true. To say following us on Twitter. That is uh, going to the Facebooks and joining the Facebook page and the Facebook group and all of that uh-huh. stuff, uh-huh. and visiting the website so you yes. can see what's all there, and go to the Discords and check yes. out the website for the link and join us there because that is what's happening. Hey Zach, what's the website? WTTS dot space space space. Now, Brent. Yes. Uh, speaking of Patreon, I w- was doing some upkeep this month as as I am wont to do. Yes. Uh, not as often as I should, perhaps, but that's neither here nor there. However, um, we have an update. Uh, there has been some changes. Some folks, uh, uh, rightly, you know, hey, you got to do you and whatever you do. They've decided that uh, they need to uh, pull back their support for the show right now, which is totally cool. Yes. That's who they are. That's where they are. That's what, no big deal. That's However, right. Brent, that does mean that our total monthly income is under <gasps> the Stargate Infinity. We lost oh, that threshold. Yeah, yeah. So the rules, which, the rules which, are the rules. Which means that yep. we do not have to watch Stargate Infinity. Woo! Oh, yeah. So now I think we have a bit of a backlog like we 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 owe a month or something still. So, you know, we've got at least we've got at least one in the can already. And we'll make sure to get that one released here relatively uh, soon ish whenever it's supposed to come out. I think uh, I think that I think that the one in the can already released. I think. Oh, did it? I think it released about a month ago. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. well, um, we'll make sure that we get caught up on all of that stuff. I I get lost on some of these things. And, of course, we do have some uh, other uh, second chances that that we need to catch up on. And we will be doing uh, that during this uh, hiatus break between Season 7 and Season 8. The month Uh, of May was basically a lost month for me. Uh, um, and me too. So, you know, like, it, it, it makes sense that you'd be like, you know, don't we have another one? And it'd be like, um, actually, no. <laughs> yeah. So we'll get all of that uh, squared away um, before we get uh, started up on season uh, eight. And dear listeners, um, people have been asking about it. They've been talking about it. Uh, we've been sort of saying something and sort of being coy about it, but uh, at the end of Season 7, the beginning of Season 8, mm-hmm. uh, this is when Stargate Atlantis begins. Yes. And so people have been asking, are you going to do all of SG-1 and then do Atlantis? Are you going to do back-to-back concurrently? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is what we have decided, dear listeners. Yes. For the most part, we are going to go back and forth between uh, the two 
shows. Yes. Do an episode of SG-1, then do an episode of Atlantis and back and forth. There are a few times when there are two-parters, there are other things going on, where we may want to watch multiples of a uh, a single season, single uh, series, before we go back to the others. Yes. Uh, and we'll play that by ear. We'll be sure to let you know as we go, and uh, perhaps with David's assistance, we can get that list out into the general populace so that you all can, uh, for those of you who care and want to know uh, and are watching along with us, for instance, can get that information uh, to you. Uh, and I so- suppose that um, I'll probably think of a clever way to handle the, like the titles or something. So if you literally don't care about Atlantis, which is possible. You can just yeah. skip those episodes, and then you just uh, you just focus on the SG one stuff. Or if you have a fan who loves Atlantis and mm-hmm. does not care about SG one, now would be the time to tell them yeah. to get on board. Yeah, that's right. Because we're going to be talking yeah. about it yep. soon, 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 soon. Um, so that is what I have to start, Brent. This is the season finale. Yes, of Stargate season seven. Shall we dig into it? Let's get into this. All right. So the director for these episodes. Uh, is uh, Martin Wood. Mm-hmm. This is his sixth and seventh directing credit of the season. He did Fallen, Homecoming, Revisions, uh, Avenger 2.0, Fallout, mm-hmm. and then Lost City 1 and 2. Uh, the teleplay was by Brad Wright and Robert Cooper. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Brad's second and third writing credit this season. He did Lifeboat early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert, this is his fourth and fifth writing credit. He did Fallen. He did have a story credit for Chimera, mm-hmm. and then he did Heroes Part 1 and Part 2. Yeah, I gotcha. Okay. So, we have a ton of guest actors. Yes, we do. All right. So, we have William Devane returning as President Henry Hayes. We have mm-hmm. Ronnie Cox returning as Vice President Robert Kinsey. Mm-hmm. We have James McDaniel re- returning as General Francis Maynard. Mm-hmm. Of course, Tony Amendola returns as Braytac. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Palfi as Anubis. Gary mm-hmm. Jones as Master Sergeant Walter Harriman. Mm-hmm. Eric Brecker returns as Colonel Albert Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Dan Payne returns as the Cold Warrior. Mm-hmm. And Michael Adam Thwaite as Harak. Mm-hmm. And Ingrid Cavallars as uh, Major Aaron Gant. Mm-hmm. Hoofda. Yeah. Good job. Now, there are several other folks who do have a few lines here or there. I'm only going to focus on a few who okay. are new to this episode. First, of course, Jessica Steen, who plays Dr. Elizabeth Weir. Yes. <clears throat> she was born in 1965 in Toronto. Uh, she was a regular of a, on a couple of U.S. TV series early on, in, relatively early on in her uh, career uh, that didn't last very long. Homefront in 1991 and Earth 2 in 94. Mm-hmm. I don't know either of those shows. Neither do I, no. Uh, she was apparently the only female regular on the 1987 syndicated show Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. <laughs> That's such a great title. (laughs) Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. Indeed. I have no idea what that would be about. Anyway, but that's it. Um, Other shows she's been on include the the Canadian police series Flashpoint, NCIS, Mm -hmm. Bullet in the Face, Mm -hmm. and several (laughs) Hallmark movies. Ah, yes, of course. The Hallmark Hallmark movies. Yes. Um, 
In 2007, she was cast as Lisa Stillman in what will be the longest-running, hour-long scripted drama in Canadian TV history, Heartland. Mm, okay. Um, while... Um, while this began as a guest character, she eventually went on to appear in over 100 episodes. Dang, nice. So I don't know, I mean, if it was like a 10-year series, I don't know if that was, if she actually became a regular or if she was a guest actor who just appeared in virtually all the episodes. It's hard to tell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the only time we will see Jessica Steen on Stargate. Oh, but this is not the last time we will see Dr. Weir. Oh. Okay. Uh, Dr. Weir gets recast in season Ah, nuts. Eight. All right, fine. Um, and we'll talk more about that as we get into next, uh, next season. Yep, okay. Um, Jessica Steen's first IMDb credit comes in 1981 when she plays Tracy Vrain in the movie Threshold. Okay. I don't know anything about that. I don't know that movie either. No. Um, and now I want to also talk about Mark Warden, who plays Ronan. Mm-hmm. This is the uh, uh, the Jaffa kid yep. who has the ship. Yep. And here is a mini bio written by Mark Warden himself. Okay, good. Mark Warden's acting career began in Toronto at the age of nine in theater and television, including a recurring role on Road to Avonlea for CBC Disney. At the age of 12, Mark was invited to join the cast of the Mickey Mouse Club for five seasons. Mm. His work led him to Los Angeles, where clients have ranged from independent films for Mad Chance and Orion to multi-camera comedy pilots and sitcoms for ABC, CBS, WB, and Fox, to dramas and sci-fi for HBO, NBC, MTV, and TNT, including guest-starring roles on Six Feet Under, NYPD Blue, Saving Grace, CSI New York, and a recurring role on Star Trek DS9 as Worf's son, Alexander. Oh, that's this guy! Yeah! The voiceover world is where Mark really found his niche, representing elite brands including Apple, Gatorade, and McDonald's, voicing animation for for Cartoon Network, Paramount, Fox, WB, and Marvel, including four films for Lionsgate as Iron Man slash Tony Stark, and projects for acclaimed interactive clients including Blizzard, Rockstar, Sony, and Activision for such roles as Deacon Blackfire in Batman Arkham Knight, Trap Shadow in Skylanders, and Sinistro for WB Games and WB World in Abu Dhabi. Nice. Um, Mark's first IMDb credit came in 1986 when he played Terry... In the episode of The Judge, entitled, Just Leave Me Alone. Okay. (laughs) That sounds nice. It sounds lovely. (laughs) And finally, I want to uh, talk about General John P. Jumper, Mm -hmm. who plays himself. Yep. Notice that in the title card. Yep. General John P. Jumper was chief of staff of the U. So, I, incidentally, I pulled this from his like bio from like the Air Force page. Sure. Um, I had to change some of the the uh, the tenses of things like was to is, is to was and such yeah. because this was written back in two thousand five when he was actually still the chief of staff. Uh-huh. But he's not anymore. 
Anyway, yep. General John P. Jumper was Chief of Staff of the U.S. Air Force in Washington, D.C. from September 2001 to September 2005. Mm-hmm. As chief, he served as the senior uniformed Air Force officer responsible for the organization, training, and equipage of more than 700,000 active duty guard, reserve, and civilian forces serving in the United States and overseas. As a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the General and other service chiefs function as military advisors to the Secretary of Defense, National Security Council, and the President. General Jumper was born in Paris, Texas. He earned his commission as a distinguished graduate of Virginia Military Institute's ROTC program in 1966. He has commanded a fighter squadron, two fighter wings, a numbered air force, and U.S. air forces in Europe Europe and allied air forces Central Europe. Mm -hmm. Prior to assuming his current position, the general served as commander of Air Combat Command at Langley Air Force Base, Virginia. Mm -hmm. He has also served at the Pentagon as Deputy Chief of Staff for Air and Space Operations, as the Senior Military Assistant to two Secretaries of Defense, and as Special Assistant to the Chief of Staff for Roles and Missions. General Jumper has been involved in numerous major combat and contingency operations since he entered service in 1966. He served two tours of duty in Southeast Asia. He was the commander of U.S. Central Command Air Forces during Operations Northern and Southern Watch, and the commander of the U.S. Air Forces in Europe during Operation Allied Force. His tour as Chief of Staff has spanned operations Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom. He is a command pilot with more than 5,000 flying hours, including 1,400 combat hours. Mm-hmm. Woof. Yeah. So, um, he was originally scheduled to make an appearance earlier on in the season, and then something happened, I think, regarding one of the Iraq war things yeah. uh, that prevented him from doing that. Um, but apparently, uh, he when he got this job... One of the things he did, or probably had one of his um, uh, secretaries um, do, is contact the show and say, when can I get on? (laughs) My predecessor was able to get on. When can I get on? (laughs) Yeah. Um, In addition to that, uh, after being sent, like, the original script for this and such, uh, it came back. So, like... He's really good at speaking and doing stuff. Do you think he could have a little bit more? Yeah. <laughs> and actually, when you think about it, I mean, he actually has, you know, for an extra part like this, right? He actually has quite a bit of stuff. Um, and when you think about uh, the previous actual general who was on the show, he just kind of stood there and said, like, well, you got your handfuls there, George, don't you? Or something to that effect. So yes. compared to that, he's got quite a bit here. Yes. And... Uh, if I didn't know he was the actual uh, chief of staff of the Air Force uh, and just an extra doing that part, I wouldn't have guessed. Yes. You know, I mean, he he holds himself in the way uh, that you would expect uh, an extra with those numbers of lines to do. So it went well. Yep. Um, he also made a comment about the set of the overall Oval Office because, you know, he spends an awful lot of time in the Oval Office. He's like, mm-hmm. yep, this is pretty much what it looks like. <laughs> nice. So, there we go. 
the original air dates for this episode were March 12 and March 19, 2004 in the U.S., mm-hmm. and March 2 and 9 in the U.K. Mm-hmm. Number one on the charts in the U.S. was Yeah! by Usher, featuring John Little, uh, featuring Little John and Ludacris for both weeks. Yep. You've been yep. listening to Yeah! for a while. Now. Yes. Uh, in the U.K., however, they decided that... Uh, uh, rather than listening to Usher sing about Yeah, they were going to listen to Britney Spears sing about Toxic. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, but only for one week. Only yeah. for one week, because oh. then DJ Casper says, let's not be toxic, let's cha-cha slide. Cha-cha slide? Right foot, left the same one? Left foot, left That's like the wedding standard. Sure. Okay, fine. Uh, you know, hey, uh, that's all I got. <laughs> I don't actually know any of these songs. <laughs> I thought the cha-cha slide came out earlier than this, but whatever. Um, you know, this was a long time ago. Um, I, I, yeah, yeah. Keep in mind, this is before you and I have met yet. True. Um, although that's coming up relatively quickly. Mm, yeah, buddy, you're in a bit. Yep. All right, so in the box office, um, we have, for the first week, we've got The Passion of Christ. Oh, yeah. And A Secret Window. And Starsky oh. and Hutch. And okay. Hidalgo. Okay. And Agent Cody Banks <laughs> to Destination London. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Isn't that exciting? It was super exciting. Oh, yeah. I didn't know where you were doing until I realized you were just reading it. <laughs> well... You know, the next week, uh-huh. it was Dawn of the Dead. Okay. And, you know, when you're talking about Dawn of the Dead, um, the Passion of Christ definitely comes to mind. I guess and, it does. Right, I mean, it could, you know, hypothetically. It, you know, could, it, it fits, yes. it fits, right? And and why do we have the Passion of Christ? Because somebody <laughs> is taking lives of people they shouldn't be taking lives of. Okay. You okay. know? And yeah. when somebody takes lives, who do you need but a couple of cops to go searching for the answer? Oh, yeah. Starsky yeah. and Hutch yeah. do this. Okay, okay, that works, yes. And in yeah. the process of doing their searching, they have to look through various secret windows to find the answer. <laughs> much better, much better. Well done. Well, you know, I do what I can. Yep, good. So... What was happening on this day around the world? Well, on March 11, terrorists explode simultaneous bombs on Madrid's rail network, ripping through oh, yeah. a commuter train and rocking three stations, killing 190. Yep. I remember like, that. Yep. On March 12, uh, Ro Mu Hyun. Uh, President of South Korea is impeached by its National Assembly for the first time in the nation's history. Mm, mm-hmm. I would just like to point out that the way this is worded, it it sounds like uh, Mu Hyun was impeached for the first time in history. Um, ah, yes. You know, which yes. I, I'm, I'm sure that I mean, that like, like, like the president was the office of the president, the yeah, office the of the president, was impeached. Yeah. but but it's like, okay, so he was impeached, and then they brought him back, and then they apparently did <laughs> it again, him again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, on March 13, Luciano Pavarotti, 
the great tenor. I use the word great in quotations, although he is kind of a large man, so maybe that's what I mean. Uh, Mm. Performs in his last opera at New York Metropolitan Opera's Tosca. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Yeah, he's kind of turned into, well, I think he's dead now. But all three of the tenors just kind of, we learned secrets about them. That, that Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, on March 14, WrestleMania 20 occurs in Madison Square Garden, New York City. Chris Benoit wins the Triple Threat title match with Triple H and Shawn Michaels. Okay. Yep, that's all good, I got. Good job, WrestleMania. Yes. On March 15... An announcement of the discovery of 90377 Sedna, the farthest natural object in the solar system so far observed. Oh, uh-huh, okay. Do you remember that? Nope, I don't. Well. There you, you know, go. You're you're my resident, you know, space guy. You're supposed to know these things. I I, I recognize this and I understand my responsibilities and, 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 yet, and yet. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'll forgive you this one time. Okay, thank you. Yep. Also on March 15, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees are Jackson Brown, The Dells, yep. George yep. Harrison, Prince, Bob Sager, Traffic, ZZ Top, and Jan Wenner. Maybe mm-hmm. it's, I, I assume it's Jan. I don't actually. Could be Jan, I suppose, but with could two ends. Anyway. It's probably Jan. Jan. Uh, anyway, so that was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees on the, the 15th. Yep. A couple of days later, it's March 17 now, and there is unrest in Kosovo, resulting in more than 22 people killed, 200 wounded, and the destruction of 35 Serb Orthodox shrines in Kosovo and two mosques in Belgrade uh, and Nice. Wait. Oh, okay. Two mosques in Belgrade and Nice. Yeah, okay. All right. So, you know, yeah. unre- I'm not sure... Churches Based were destroyed on this, in Kosovo. How the the Belgrade and Nice mosques and then connect, but I'm sure it does. And then Croats probably in uh, Belgrade and Nice damaged mosques. Probably, yeah. It was a mess. Yep, it was a mess. On March 19, a Swedish DC-3 shot down by a Russian MiG-15 in the 1950s is finally recovered after years of work. Hmm. Uh, the remains of the crew are left in place pending further investigation. That was a while ago. I wonder that if those was. investigations have concluded. Uh, I presume that they have now. So, uh, on March 20, the 18th Soul Train Music Awards occur. R. Kelly, Janet Jackson, Outkast, and Beyonce win for various things. Yep. And a couple of days later, on March 22nd, Ahmad Yassin, co-founder and leader of the Palestinian Sunni Islamist militant group Hamas, and bodyguards kill, are killed in the Gaza Strip by Israeli Air Force uh, AH-64 Apache-fired Hellfire missiles. Hmm. Gotcha. So, there you have it. Yeah. Um, I do have some trivia for this episode. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. Okay. So... Uh, this episode did originally air in two parts. Um, it was originally adapted from the script for what was going to be the feature film Stargate 2. Um, because way back, uh, even in season five, they were looking at ending the show because that's what they were expecting. Mm-hmm. And then they went over to sci-fi and all of this stuff. And then 
uh, they realized that they weren't going to end, but they still wanted to do the, sh- the the next show, and they needed this to help spin off the next show, and such, and so they had to adapt it, um, and so that's what this is. Now, on the DVDs, this episode actually is put together as one episode. Ah, okay. It just goes straight through, uh, and um, uh, Brad Wright, Rob Cooper, and the like... Um, really say that they should be watched as a single unit. It's yeah. designed and it's built as a single story, um, but they cut it in half for uh, because sci-fi wanted it in two. Yep. Uh, and, frankly, if you watch just the first part, it really is a lot of setup uh, that doesn't pay off until the second part. Yes. Um, so, you know, you really it really is designed to be one story. So uh, that's why we're doing this as one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when Jack says in that first episode, uh, now, if you'll excuse me, my favorite television show starts in half an hour. Uh, inside the show, we are, of course, talking about Simpsons because that's his favorite show and all of that stuff. But mm-hmm. um, kind of like in the meta world, uh, when this show aired, sci-fi immediately following this show showed another episode of Stargate SG-1. It wouldn't have been Last City Part 2, but it would have been, you know, a previous episode of it, right? Gotcha. Yep. Uh, doing a, a rerun type of thing. Yes. And so this is right about that 30-minute mark uh, of the show. And so when he says, excuse me, my favorite show starts in half an hour, well, in a half an hour from when he says that would have been another SG-1 show. <laughs> nice. Um. Let's see here. Uh, so interestingly, uh, when this two-parter originally aired, uh, they had different on-screen guest and and end credits, right? Yep. Uh, for the two ones. However, when they merged it for the DVD, they merged all of those guest credits into one. Mm-hmm. However, later on, when it went into syndication and they split it around again into two, sometimes they used the combined on-screen guest credit run. Uh, such that there were actors who were credited for being in part one, but they weren't actually there until part two. Aha, uh-huh. gotcha. So, um, however, uh, they've got that all figured out. Yep. Uh, now, maybe. You know, so. so I can say that the uh, that if you buy it through iTunes, it's two separate things, and there are two separate t- title cards. Yep. And when right now, if you watch it on Netflix, which is how I'm watching it right now. It's two episodes with two title cards. Yep. However, I also watched the DVD for the commentaries, and that was swooshed together as one. Yep. Uh, it does feel better when you watch it as one. Mm. Uh, it feels... Um, I mean, I guess that's hard for More me to cohesive. say for sure, because it's been a long time since I actually watched the DVD, and I was you know, watching it for the commentary, and so I was not like watching the story. I was listening to something different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it does just kind of flow. It just kind of moves in. Yep. Um, anyway... Uh, during the final scene, uh, where, well, actually in a couple of different spaces, one when they're on Proclarus Teonas, and then also when they're in the Antarctic outpost, uh, in the music, you hear a couple of, uh, lines of music, uh, that are hints of the theme of what will be Stargate Atlantis. Oh, okay. Um, you wouldn't have picked up on that, nope. Brent. Nope. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I, I was like, oh, hey, yeah, that's the, that's the Atlantis theme. Uh, just a couple of little lines here and there that just kind of connects that to it. Um, one thing that you may not know 
but this was actually Don Davis's final appearance as part of the main cast. Oh, I did not. Yeah. Uh, his okay. character, General Hammond, was promoted to Lieutenant General in this episode, and he's reassigned to the Pentagon to explain his absence. Uh, the decision was Davis's... Uh, it was a combined decision, right? It was a mutual thing. They, they had the conversation. So it wasn't... He was fired. He wasn't, he, he wasn't fired. He, yeah. he decided to step down. Yeah, um, okay. And, you know, Frank, this is 2004. I don't know all the details of what was going on, but uh, he does end up uh, passing away in 2009, which is only a few years later. Yeah. Um, so there may have been some health concerns, even at this point in time, that led to this. Yeah. Um, it yeah. also uh, opened the door for what they do with O'Neill uh, next season. Oh. Um, so there's just a little bit of a foreshadowing there for you. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, now, uh, as I mentioned, this was <laughs> Davis's decision to leave the series. Uh-huh. Um, uh, now, within the context of the story, it actually makes sense that this would happen because, you know, he'd been at the SGC for seven years when it was active and at least some time prior to that because he was there to close it down. Yes. And having been in a single place for that long at that rank, uh, it would have been needed for the character to either get promoted or go into mandatory retirement. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, so, there you go. Um, let's see here. Um, in the episode, uh, the president has a visitor named Bonnie who comes in, you know, at one point in time. Uh, I think he says goodbye to uh, Dr. Weir, and then he invites Bonnie in or whatnot. Uh, this is Bonnie uh, Arbuthnot, uh, and she uh, is a development director in Chicago who won the Sci-Fi Channel's Get in the Gate contest for walk-on role <laughs> as a White House staffer. <laughs> Nice. Bonnie, so good to see you. Yes. <laughs> nice. No wonder yep. she had a weird smirk on her face. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, hey, if that were me, I would be giddy as all get out, too. Yes. Yes. Um, so SG3 Airman, uh, who was played by Ron Blecker, has, he does actually have a couple of lines in there, but I didn't talk about him. He is actually the show's military advisor. Oh, yeah, and so he's done a lot of stuff for the show, but this is his first credited appearance in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, let's see here. So, uh, as I mentioned, this episode was originally um, going to be a movie, and so they had to do a lot of trimming and cutting. Uh, yeah. One of the reasons that they did the clip show inauguration was because even after all of these trims and cuts, uh, they were still over budget, and they needed to find something that they could do to... Uh, trim the, the the season's budget down. So they had to have that clip show in there mm. for mm -hmm. that. But some of the notable cuts that they really, really wanted to have uh, is that, uh, you know, we hear uh, the, the government leaders in the Oval Office listening to the phone as they describe the USS Nimitz being yeah. destroyed yeah. and the spruance and all that stuff. However, uh, the original script did have them... Um, Showing that, like, we actually got to see the Nimitz get blown up. Gotcha. Um, which I admit would have been really, really cool, but uh, that was outside the purview of what they could do. Outside so, budget. Yep. Um, also, uh, at the end, when they have the transportation rings that are blowing, uh, you know, melting the ice to bore a hole through it to get to the outpost, 
Mm -hmm. Uh, The original plan was for them to parachute through that hole to the base. Mm. But here again, uh, that was too expensive, and so they just used the transporter rings. Yep. Gotcha. Uh, This episode was actually Richard Dean Anderson's 150th episode. Gotcha. Okay. You know, he's there's been a few episodes here and there that he was not part of, and so this yep. is actually his 150th time. Uh, this episode was nominated for several awards and actually won one. It was nominated for the VES Award for Outstanding Visual Effects in a Broadcast Series, mm-hmm. uh, nominated for a Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Special Visual Effects for a Series, mm-hmm. nominated for a Gemini for Best Visual Effects, and it won the Leo Award for Best Sound Editing in a Dramatic Series. Nice. So, um, this has a lot of nominations and awards under its belt. And this episode in various languages is titled The Lost City, Part 1, and then Part 2. Mm-hmm. Just, that's it. N- nobody messes that oh, up. Oh, nobody, nobody's, nobody, nobody does anything different. No, nobody does anything. It just, nobody, nobody titled it, It's Been on Earth All Along. Yes. No, uh-huh. no. Yep. All right. Now, Brent. Yeah. The time has come for the synopsis. Are you ready? I am ready. Let's get into this. I'm not sure I'm ready, but... (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. Colonel Jack O'Neill is at home, shaving. On the bathroom mirror in front of him hangs an unfinished crossword puzzle. His cell phone rings. On the other end is a rather excited Daniel Jackson. Daniel, I'll be there in 30 minutes. But this does not stop the archaeologist. SG2 has returned from P3X439. I did some translating, and the writing talks about ancient knowledge and stuff like that. I I think we may have found another ancient repository of knowledge that might actually give us the information we need to find the lost city and defeat Anubis. For Jack's part, he's shaving. And he looks, oh, look at that. I got shaving cream on my phone. Got to rinse it off. Got to rinse it off. Not paying attention. Shake it off. What? Uh, Daniel, I'll be there in 30 minutes. Oh, 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 wait, 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 can you help me with my crossword puzzle? In Washington, D.C., a blonde woman emerges from a residence at a hurried pace, talking on her cell phone. She's running late for a meeting with the President of the United States. She clashes with a Russian man over who gets the taxi. I get it. Oh, I get it. I remember. Yeah, they were all doing that in Russian, so I, you know, I'm assuming that's what it was, right? Yeah. Uh, as they go back and forth, the, a limo pulls up, and the driver asks for Dr. Elizabeth Weir. Turns out this blonde woman is Dr. Weir, and this limo has come to take her to her meeting. She lets the Russian have the cab and climbs into the limo. Vice President Kinsey is sitting there waiting for her. On the way to the White House, Kinsey tells Weir that the president wants to talk to her about an alien transportation device called the Stargate. Flabbergasted, Dr. Weir thinks the VP is joking. Kinsey's response is to hand her a note from the President of the United States himself saying... This is not a joke, President Henry Hayes. Kinsey hands her one of many mission reports from the SGC, and Weir begins to read. O'Neill finally arrives at the SGC. He's looking over his completed crossword puzzle. The doors open at level 28. Sam, Daniel, and Teal are all standing there waiting for him. Apparently they've been standing there for a long, long time. He's late. He said 30 minutes, 60 minutes ago. They have a briefing with the general, but Jack seems more interested in the fact that he has finished his crossword puzzle. Apparently, he and Major Carter had some kind of bet, you know, double or nothing for something, but who knows? Handing her the puzzle, she reviews it and rejects it quickly, noting that most of the answers aren't actually correct. 
The team finally makes it to the briefing room where Colonel Reynolds and Major Harper are already waiting. As they gather round the table, Carter informs O'Neill that SG-3 discovered a Gould reconnaissance probe on P-3X-439, meaning that the Gould are now aware of the planet and likely of its importance. This planet may contain the whereabouts of the lost city of the end other ancient knowledge that could give them the edge they need to defeat Anubis! Woo! Given what happened the last time they ran into one of these devices, the general seems a bit surprised Colonel O'Neill is so willing to take on this mission. O'Neill, for his part, didn't listen to Daniel uh, on the phone and clearly didn't read the mission outline and has no idea what the general is talking about. Daniel pleads his case to the colonel using typically Daniel speak about knowledge and data and and archaeology and and, and (laughs) meaning of life stuff. Hammond adds to the comments that they have a mission of the SGC to find alien technology that will help them defeat the Gua world. And this mission counts. But it is dangerous, so SG-3 and SG-5 will join SG-1 on this mission. This convinces O'Neill. Why didn't you just say so? Oh, and if you find the ancient repository of knowledge, don't stick your head in it like you did last time. Right. Right. Meanwhile, back in Washington, Weir arrives at the White House and is escorted by Kinsey to a room full of boxes containing SGC mission reports. As she opens one of the boxes... The shock of the existence of the Stargate and aliens is still fresh in her mind. She asks Kinsey why the president has decided to tell her about this and questions what kind of job he could possibly want to offer her. Kinsey tells her to try and say no to the president's offer before leaving her to read the mission reports. In the gate room, Hammond bids SG teams 1, 3, and 5 farewell and good luck as they enter the Stargate. The teams emerge through the gate on P3X... Uh, 439. In the distance is a large ruined monument. O'Neill instructs Reynolds to establish a defensive perimeter around the gate, while SG-1 moves out to investigate the structure. As the as SG-1 searches the monument, a small Gulwuld fleet composed of a Hatak and two Elkesh emerge from hyperspace in orbit around the planet. Unaware of the approaching Gulwuld threat, the team continues to investigate the structure. Carter finds some energy readings. Daniel reads some ancient writing. O'Neill is getting bored. He walks toward the other two, kind of to see what they're doing, I guess, kind of. Suddenly, the ancient repository of knowledge appears on the wall. Whoa. We found it. Now all we have to do is figure out how to remove it safely for study back at home. And don't get too close, because otherwise it'll grab your head and suck your brains out. Well, not quite, but you get the idea. Unfortunately, this is also the point when SG-3 detects the incoming Elkesh and Death Gliders. Reynolds radios SG-1, we don't have much time. The Guawuld begin bombing the whole area. With little options on the table, O'Neill slaps some C-4 onto the wall next to the ancient device. We can at least prevent the Guawuld from getting their hands on this device. But the other three of the mem- th- other three members of the team protest. This is our only chance to get this information. We can't just blow it up. Bombers continue to bomb. The gliders continue their strafing runs. Time is limited. Daniel run toward- runs toward the device, trying to stick his head in the machine. O'Neill stops him. Well, someone has to do it. O'Neill protests. And if you do it, who's going to translate when you go ancient? And with that, he sticks his own head into the machine. And once again, has the entire life of the ancient knowledge downloaded into his brain. He collapses onto the ground. Colonel Reynolds continues to plead with SG-1. We can't hold this position for long. We gotta get out of here. 
Carter gets on the radio and tells them that they are leaving. Tilk and Daniel help the still-dazed colonel as they race to the gate. Fortunately, they make it to and through the gate without too much difficulty. Uh, back in the gate room, O'Neill remarks to Hammond, I did it again, and proceeds to the infirmary. <laughs> Meanwhile, at the White House, night has fallen. Weir is in the Oval Office waiting for President Hayes. He enters. They talk for a few minutes. Hayes wants Weir to lead the Stargate program. Put a civilian face on the program. Weir is overwhelmed by all this. Hayes is convinced that Weir is the right person for the job. I mean, she speaks five languages and has brokered some of the most important peace treaties on the planet in recent years. And she doesn't like weapons and gun proliferation and all of that stuff from the military. And now she's working for the military. And it's perfect. Weir wonders what Hayes will do if she says no to his offer. Smiling, Hayes is confident that she won't refuse. Never going to happen. In the hallway after the meeting, uh, Kinsey smarmily threatens Weir. I'm the one person you want as an ally and the one person you don't want against you. Is he trying to compensate for something? <laughs> Back at the SGC, the team debriefs Hammond. O'Neill is now going to slowly lose his mind as it's overwritten by the ancient knowledge. It's going to be a few days before it really gets going, and so O'Neill asks to take the weekend off to get some personal affairs in order. The next day, Carter arrives at O'Neill's home. As O'Neill opens the front door, he is surprised to see her, and she admits that she had been unable to sleep the night before. They awkwardly stand there in the entryway, Carter trying to explain how she just happened to drive to his place. I mean, I just got in the car, and I just, and then I, here I am. I, I know what? He offers her a beer, and they head to the living room to talk. But they don't really know what to talk about. And before things can get too awkward, another knock on the door is heard. This time it's Daniel and Teal'c. Teal'c brought donuts. Sure did. The whole team really just needs to be together at this time. Meanwhile, on P3X439, night has fallen. Several Jaffa stand in formation in front of the wreckage of the ancient repository that SG-1 had destroyed. Anubis approaches them with two coal warriors at his side. The Jaffa hold their heads low in disgrace, knowing they have displeased their master in failing to capture the repository of knowledge. Anubis orders the Jaffa commander to rise. The commander reports what happened. Anubis is displeased. He turns and walks away in silence. The two cold warriors stand where they are and then open fire, killing the commander and all his troops. The Jaffa are useless to me. Back at O'Neill's house, the team gather round and drink beer. Well, Jack, Sam, and Daniel drink beer. And uh, by the way, Daniel is a super duper lightweight, by the way. Tilk ah. is having fruit juice because Tilk doesn't drink alcohol. O'Neill is trying to convince him that Mr. Burns from The Simpsons is an analogy for the Gua'uld. Burns as Gua'uld. Yeah. The others don't buy it. Yeah, I'm with the others. Yeah. Now, Daniel, as I said, is a lightweight when it comes to alcohol consumption, and he waxes poetic on how deep Teal'c is. Teal'c is one of the deepest people he knows. Go ahead, Teal'c. Say something deep. My death has, is irrelevant to this conversation. There! Did you see how deep that was? <laughs> <laughs> All right, no more beer for you. <laughs> there is another knock on the door. 
It is General Hammond, in civilian clothes. O'Neill invites him in, gets him a chair and a beer. With a big breath, Hammond delivers the news. I have been relieved of command of the SGC. He continues, the president has effectively put a halt to the program until a three-month review can be concluded. This is unlike any other situation that we've been in before. This time, it's real. The team suspects Kinsey may have had something to do with this, using his influence with the president. That Kinsey. Hammond insists, however, that despite choosing Kinsey for vice president, President Hayes is a good man. Hammond also informs them that the SGC will be under the leadership of Dr. Elizabeth Weir. Jackson is familiar with her work. Furthermore, Hammond has been called to Washington, D.C. for reassignment, and he feels he can do more for the team there than in Colorado. As for SG-1, they are still to report for duty on Monday. That Monday, Jackson introduces himself to his new boss. Weir doesn't feel overly welcomed by the people at the SGC, but she was hoping that maybe Daniel, you know, being a civilian and all that stuff might be nice to her, but you know, he's a little skeptical. Daniel reminds her that she's replacing a great man, uniform withstanding. Not uniform withstanding. Whatever. Whatever the correct approach is. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, Daniel attempts to impress upon her that reports by themselves will not give a full picture of the state of the galaxy. Only stepping through the gate and witnessing what's actually happening out there will truly do that. But the conversation is cut short when the gate begins to spin. All of the SG teams are on Earth right now, and Weir wonders who could be dialing in. They receive Master Braytac's IDC, and if they don't open the iris, the next sound we hear is Master Braytac going splat. We don't want that. So Weir has the iris opened and steps into the gate room with Daniel to meet Master Braytac. Daniel introduces the new commander of the base to the Jaffa. Braytac seems a little unnerved by this turn of events, but doesn't have time to dwell on that. He has bad news. Anubis will be attacking Earth in three days. Three days is a Thursday. Thursday isn't good for us. That's a joke from later on, but it fit here better. (laughs) Fit here better. Carry on. Carry on. Back in Washington, President Hayes is on his phone telling Kinsey to hear Braytac out. While he's talking, Hammond enters the Oval Office. Hayes and Hammond are old buddies and begin to reconnect. Hayes has a new job for Hammond right now. He doesn't get to retire. At the SGC, Braytac and SG-1 are in the briefing room discussing Anubis' impending invasion when Weir and Kinsey walk in. Weir quickly greets O'Neill, Carter, and Tilk for the first time, acknowledging the strange circumstances under which they are first meet. As they all sit at the table, Kinsey is hostile and questions the validity of Mr. Braytac's claims. He purports that the attack is entirely fictitious and was merely conceived of by SG-1 as a means to prevent the Stargate program from being shut down. O'Neill becomes agitated about Kinsey's obliviousness to the situation. When Weir suggests trying to negotiate with Anubis, O'Neill claims that the whole situation is Durantis, which Jackson translates to mean insane, crazy, ludicrous, nuts, foolish, etc., etc. Most of those are, are my additions, not, not, not Jackson's. <laughs> but that's okay. You get the idea. 
O'Neill goes on to claim that the location of the lost city will eventually come to him. I know where it is. I mean, I don't, but I will. And asks for permission to pursue it when he does. Kinsey strongly objects. No! And then you get that great line, Who are you really? Good line. But Weir Mm -hmm. states that she will consider it, which upsets Kinsey to no end, which makes me happy. As the meeting concludes, Braytek and Teal'c stand. They will depart for Chulak in search of ships and warriors to help defend Earth. Weir exits the briefing room and enters her office. Kinsey follows her. He is livid. You can practically see the steam pouring out his ears. He wants them gone. He wants all of them gone. He wants her to remove the people he doesn't like. He wants his own people. He throws his weight around, blah, blah. But Weir stands her ground. That moment when you think, well, maybe she isn't all bad. She will run the SGC as she sees fit. In the gate room, Braytek and Teal'c stand at the end of the ramp. O'Neill is about to give Teal'c the if I don't see you again speech, but Teal'c is certain that they will see each other again with the rest of SG-1 hoping that he's right. Do you know something I don't know? It is actually you who know something that I don't. See? Deep. He's deep. 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 After bidding farewell to the rest of the team, Teal'c walks through the Stargate with Braytek as Jack, Daniel, and Sam look on. To be continued. Mm-hmm. Part two. Dr. Jackson and Colonel O'Neill sit in Jackson's lab. At a desk, O'Neill attempts to finish his crossword puzzle as Daniel thumbs through a book, thumbs through a book across the room. After several seconds, Daniel begins to approach O'Neill, asking if any of these words in the book look familiar to him. O'Neill is uninterested and replies that he is still unable to speak ancient. As the two talk, Daniel becomes agitated. Jack, are you going to take this seriously? He grabs the crossword from O'Neill's hands in frustration. And as he begins to inspect it, Major Samantha Carter walks in. She begins to speak, but is quickly interrupted by Daniel, who notes that for the clue label, O'Neill has inserted the word Proclarouche. And for the clue sphere, he has answered Teonos. Daniel quickly surmises that Proclarouche Teonos is the name of the planet where the lost city is located. The other look at look the other two look at him skeptically. Jack is hungry, and he departs for the mess hall. In the SGC mess hall, O'Neill, Carter, and Daniel sit at a table where Daniel reads through his book. From his reading, he quickly discovers that Proclarouche Teonas translates into Lost in Fire, which he claims is further support for his belief that the lost city is located there. Carter responds that unless they have a gate address for the planet, simply knowing its name means nothing. At that moment, O'Neill reaches across the table and rips the patch containing the point of origin symbol on Daniel's jacket. Upon placing it on the table, the trio look at each other perplexed. O'Neill, appearing equally as confused over what has just transpired, responds that when he looks at Earth's point of origin symbol, he feels that it means at. At. That? At. Not, Not that. At. At. Uh, Daniel thinks he understands what O'Neill is trying to say and proceeds to test his hypothesis. He searches for a blank page in his notebook. He draws the glyph representing the constellation Orion. He shows it to O'Neill, who responds simply saying, Shh! Ha! Sorry. Didn't mean to offend you. <laughs> as, you. The, as the trio again look on perplexed, O'Neill explains that the sound shh is what the symbol reminds him of. Daniel 
puts the pieces together. The Stargate symbols aren't just constellations, they are also syllables. Proclarouche Teonas isn't just the name of the place, it's also the gate address. Whoa! In the Stargate operations room, Daniel shares his discovery with Dr. Rear, while Carter searches for the planet in the computer's database. Unfortunately, she quickly discovers that they already tried dialing this planet over two years ago, but were unable to successfully establish a wormhole. She contends that the lost city could still be on the planet, and that the planet's position in space could still be calculated based on its gate address, but that a ship would be needed to take them there. Daniel suggests they use Prometheus, but Weir rejects that idea outright. They need the Prometheus on Earth to protect the planet when Anubis arrives. But perhaps Teal can procure a ship for them on Chulak. Weir asks where Colonel O'Neill is in all of this, to which Daniel responds, Packing! Daniel, Carter, and Weir then proceed to an SGC storage room strewn with shelves of equipment. As they enter, they see O'Neill quickly walking around the room, grabbing armfuls of supplies and collecting them into a large pile. As they follow behind him, while he continues, O'Neill claims that he doesn't know why he's doing what he's doing. But this is not unlike the kind of thing he did the first time the ancient repository was downloaded into his brain, so this must be a good sign, right? Right? Oh, and uh, we need an aqua generator. Can you get me one of those? Meanwhile, on Chulak, night has fallen. Tilk and Braytek sit in a large tent. They are talking with Ronan, a young Jaffa whose father was known by Braytek back in the day. Ronan has a Teltak at his disposal, but he has also seen Anubis's power, and one ship will be no match to that kind of power. Ah, my young Padawan, but this little ship can take us to where the big guns are stored, and they will allow us to eliminate Anubis once and for all. Oh, okay. Well, you could use my ship then, Master. <laughs> but I'm not such a bad pilot myself, and I will fly the ship. And I will fly slash pilot the ship. At the SGC, Dr. Weir stands in the embarkation room and is surrounded by several crates of supplies. SG-1 enters ready to go off-world. Dr. Weir wonders if they've brought enough stuff that there may be a kitchen sink around here somewhere. The joke doesn't land. But O'Neill sees... Hope in her, anyhow, for at least attempting to make a joke. In Ronan's Teltac, the team and all their gear set off for Proclarouche Teonas at best possible speed. O'Neill is going to die eventually, and so our heroes each take their turn to say goodbye, starting with Daniel. He would have used the ancient device, but Jack tells him that it couldn't have gone down any other way. Carter enters. There are two days from their destruction. From, they are two days from their destination. They aren't getting there fast enough. Jack immediately heads to the engine room to tinker with the engines to make the ship go faster. And the ship goes faster. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, at Earth, three of Anubis's hot-talk vessels have exited hyperspace over Earth's moon and are approaching the planet. President Hayes, Vice President Kinsey, Generals Hammond, Maynard, and John P. Jumper himself are in the Oval Office discussing the situation. It looks like Braytac's warning was correct. If these ships, however, are all that Anubis has sent to us, then Prometheus and the fleet of F-302s could handle it. But if there are more, then they'd be screwed. For now, use the threat of ancient weapons to keep Anubis's full fleet at bay. Let's stay at DEFCON 3 
and inform China, the UK, France, Russia, and Canada of the situation. Uh, why are we informing Canada? I don't because know. the show is set in Canada. Yeah, probably. Almost certainly. Anyway. I mean, no, I'm sorry. The show is filmed in Canada. It's not set in Canada. Fair enough. Aboard the Teltac, as O'Neill is making the ship go faster, he and Carter get a goodbye moment themselves. Carter says she has been ordered to take command of the team if he is incapacitated, and he says that she should do it immediately. They have feelings for one another. She can't quite say what she feels, but he knows. In Anubis' mothership, Anubis stands in a room looking out a window. Harak! (coughs) (coughs) Harak enters, informing his god that the advance attack has met with no resistance yet. Anubis orders them to begin the assault. Meanwhile, SG-1 arrives on Proclarouche Teonas. It is a fiery planet covered in lava, but they do find a small dome in the rock that may be what they are looking for. They use the rings to bore a hole through the rock. Wearing hazmat suits, the team transports down to the surface while Ronan and Braytek remain on the ship. Sure enough, this used to be some kind of ancient outpost. A force field had kept the lava away and then hardened into a this dome shape. O'Neill leads them to the center of the space. There is a chair on a dais. He sits down and everything comes alive. He activates a force field again and they can breathe normally. He displays a holographic map of the ancient empire. They discover that they what they discover that what they are looking for isn't on this planet. But rather, it's back on Earth, under the ice of Antarctica. What? Uh? But they didn't come here just for the information that they need to go back home. No. O'Neill turns off the force field and then proceeds to pull the battery out of the dais. With this energy source, they head back to the ship. And just to add a little more spice to the game, the dome is becoming unstable now since they drilled a hole through it with the transportation rings. Which makes sense. On the Teltac, Ronan reveals himself to be a servant of Anubis. Oh, no. He stabs Braytac in the symbiote pouch. (laughs) But since Braytac doesn't have a symbiote, that doesn't end the fight right there. The fight continues. And the wiser master takes out the foolish child Jaffa. He manages to ring SG-1 back up before collapsing to the floor. Braytac is dying. But... He is able to tell them that Ronan was a traitor. And then O'Neill, with the healing power of the ancients, puts his hand over Braytac's wound and heals the Master Jaffa. Everyone is amazed. That's amazing. That is amazing. And they start their journey back to Earth. Back on Earth, the Gould fleet attacks. In the Oval Office, our leaders listen on as the captain of the USS Spruance describes the destruction of the USS Nibbets from blast from orbit. (laughs) Then the line goes dead. The Spruance has been destroyed too. After the attack on the Nibbets, Anubis visits the Oval Office via a hologram. Surrender! Uh, no. You must surrender. You are outmatched. Death first! They didn't really actually say that. It's just like, never going to happen. But death nah. first sounds more interesting. Yes. Well, the ghoul bad guy departs. It's time to regroup. Kinsey decides that it's time for him to go to the Alpha site, and the rest of them remain at their post because they're not cowards like he. Anubis, confident that the Earth doesn't have advanced weapons, begins to launch his attack on Earth in earnest, 
focusing on power stations across the globe. Uh, it's a meteor shower, folks. Nothing to worry about here. It's not a big deal. It's not like like there's aliens who are trying to destroy the whole planet. Nope, no, it's just some meteors. We're all okay. Nothing to see. It's time to go to DEFCON 1 and launch Prometheus because we are going to be hosed very soon. In hyperspace aboard the Teltec bound for Earth, O'Neill is working on modifying the ring transport platform in some way when he is approached by Teal'c, and they have their goodbye moment. At the SGC, Kinsey is not so patiently waiting for Weir to open the gate when the power goes down. Weir, taking charge, immediately has the iris manually closed. Anubis dials in and sends something bad through the gate. But they're safe for now because she closed the iris. Kinsey doesn't care. He wants to go off planet now. Turn the power back on. Blah, blah, blah. They receive a message from SG-1, but not through the gate. The team is coming in hot. Not long later, Weir is on the phone with the president, discussing their plans. Kinsey wants to take control of this base. He is convinced that Weir is just screwing everything up. Hayes tells him to shut up and then fires him. Yes. Yay! Weir suggests they use the Prometheus to protect SG-1 as soon as they arrive. Hammond is captaining the Prometheus. Woohoo! Yay! He to take the fight to Anubis and defend SG-1. SG-1 gets to Earth and jumps out of hyperspace very close to the planet so that they could avoid the armada that's surrounding the planet, and they go to Antarctica. Pull up, Teal'c. Pull up. I am endeavoring to pull up. O'Neill. Actually, it's not O'Neill. It's, it's, it's like it's Daniel who's saying that. But anyway. Yes. Hey, hey and he images. Yay! And then they get to the place in Antarctica where they're supposed to go, and they mo- use the modified rings to burrow a hole through the ice. <laughs> Anubis's fleet goes to Antarctica. Uh-oh, this looks really, really bad. We're going to get our butts kicked. But then the Prometheus and a whole fleet of F-302s get to Antarctica too. And they begin a big battle fight. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> 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 SG-1 rings down to the surface. They find another room like on Proclarouche Teonas. O'Neill puts the battery they found into the correct slot, taking out the old one first that didn't work anymore. The room lights up. Call warriors beam down and try to stop them. SG-1 fights them back. As O'Neill sits on the throne on the dais again, Colonel, you better do what you're going to do because we don't have much time. The Prometheus has run out of all of its guns. All it has left is to plot a collision course towards Anubis' mothership. Ramming speed! O'Neill turns on the guns. Doing the drum. Suddenly, millions of glowing yellow projectiles pour out of the outpost, through the hole in the ice, up into space. They take out the cold waters. They fly around Antarctica, taking out all the bad guy ships. They fly into space, splitting around the Prometheus and annihilating Anubis's mothership. The day is saved. Hooray! But O'Neill collapses into his chair. Boo! The team takes him to the stasis pod that he pointed out to them upon entering the outpost earlier. O'Neill is put in stasis. Daniel looks around and tells his friends, This isn't the lost city. (gasps) This is just another outpost. (gasps) The end. The end. Okay, Brent. Uh Uh-huh. I have spent most of the time that we normally spend talking about this episode recounting this episode. Yes. But that's okay. Yeah. Lost City. Mm-hmm. What did you think? 
It was okay, I guess. <laughs> I just had a vision throughout time and space, and I just saw a whole bunch of mouths just go, what? <laughs> you, you, there, there's that one poor soul who has a heart condition, and it just stopped. <laughs> but I'm kind of serious. It was okay, I guess. The um, there is It is interesting to me how different television is from film. This was a great film story. This would have been a wonderful film. As a television show, this mostly worked. Um, mostly. And there's people out there that are like, what are you talking about? It is flaws. Eh, mm, hold on to that one for a second there. Um, you're right. The pacing on it was definitely like the first episode was setting up the second episode. No question about that. And, you know, as a movie, that would have worked. That would have worked fine. Um, and also you would have been able to do things that uh, you wouldn't have had to rush through a couple of things. So the animosity that was being shown to Dr. Weir throughout the whole episode uh, evolved over time such that uh, it was very clear that, uh, you know, she was incredibly capable and a fantastic individual who could handle the responsibility that was given to her. But the the pressure against her, like from, from just about everybody, you know, the amount of explanation that kept happening over and over again, even though she, she, she was obviously well-versed in it, uh, was starting to get grating. And it was like, you know, guys, like, you know, I get it. She's an outsider, but seriously, like, and, and I get it. She's taking the chair of general Hammond. And so you think that it's literally impossible for somebody else to do this, but like, it's, it was almost a little bit tropey at that point, a little bit too, too much. So it was wearing on me. And I think that if you had a little bit more time, you could have done that a little bit better or you could have had those moments play out slightly differently so that it didn't quite look like our heroes were whiny, but it kind of was coming across that way. So there was that, which was kind of a drag on it. And then there was also the the the, the reality that this episode was drawing from a whole bunch of previous canon and tying it in together. And in some cases, it just doesn't add up the explanation that was provided ages ago as to what the symbols were were constellations and it was told that it was a map right and we even had to adjust for stellar drift we were able to get to abydos because it was nearby and it didn't drift all that far every other place we couldn't get there because we were trying all these combinations and it never seemed to, to never seemed to do anything so we had to do something about it it was it was it was locations in the sky that were the symbols and the locations were from the planet earth. Now I get it asterisk like, but Brent, we just established that the ancients are back are, are, are on earth. Did we, did we actually do that? What we established was that there was an outpost over there that had a chair with a battery and we needed the battery and we needed to go back to earth. And we interpreted that, that the Lost City is on Earth, but nobody ever said that. And now we're back on Earth at another outpost using the same battery to uh, use a defense weapon that totally saves the day. Currently, the story is Jack got a hold of enough information so that he could save Earth, not find the Lost City. So what are these symbols then? Oh, wait, they're syllables? It's a syllabary. Okay, so instead of it being symbols in the sky, they're actually representing letters, like an alphabet, more like a syllabary, like we just said. And so 
So you're telling me that the word, whatever the planet's name was, means lost in fire. And it happens to be located at this particular gate address, which translates to lost in fire. And that also happens to represent the constellations in the sky, which are supposed to provide spatial coordinates for this thing. So way back in season one, what we were actually trying to do was trying to find words, not coordinates. No, not buying it. Not buying it. That works if this was a story that was in a movie. Remember how when we we, we uh, took a look at Stargate the movie and then we redid it and we were kind of acknowledging like there was a whole lot in here that kind of got slopped around a little bit when the television show started because it works for a movie, but it doesn't really work really well for a TV show. Mostly like the biggest one of all was what the ghoul even look like it works for a movie. It was it was it was it was um, uh, symbolic. Uh, what that was. I mean, like, so it did have this kind of quasi real quality to it. And that was magical. And that was wonderful in the movie, but it doesn't really work really well in a TV show. So we shifted it entirely. Same thing here. Like you wanted to, you wanted to have the team figure out where the lost city was. And so you have a planet lost to fire and it's not the lost city. And so you go there because it's the word and you're able to dial. Nah, that, that one, that one doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So that one was kind of a slip and a fall on that. And there was something else that was pretty dang important. Um, Oh yeah. The whole, like it was on earth the whole time thing. Like, I mean, I guess I suppose, I mean, I have the foreshadowing knowledge that there's a television show coming up called Atlantis, and I kind of hope that it was not set on Earth. But right now, it's like, looks like it's on Earth. That's kind of, oh. And it's in Antarctica, because of course it was. Or maybe it is, maybe it isn't, right? Again, like, we haven't found the Lost City, we found an outpost. But so, like, all this information is kind of slopping around, and it's not really seeming to do that good of a job of cohesing together. But... We did have a tremendous amount of really cool stuff happen. So we had just all sorts of bananas cool things occur, uh, including, um, you know, Kinsey getting told. That's fun. Um, him, him, you know, him getting kicked out one more time. <laughs> still still on board with that. We had a fantastic battle scene in Antarctica. I loved that thing like crazy when the cavalry came in. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Um, we had the, uh, you know, the the sacrifice of our characters, you know, or the willing sacrifice of our characters that that didn't have to come to be sort of except for one. Right. He's in he's in the sleep pod, except that you told me that he's going to be like general, I guess. Um, and so uh, so right now, where am I at? I'm 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 at I'm at, you know, like, is O'Neill ever going to come back type of a thing, which is kind of an open question. Uh, and yeah, we have Anubis destroyed. We have him destroyed. He's gone. He's completely gone, except that I know he's not, right? So this is where we're kind of also getting into the problem of like the 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 spoilers can't help themselves anymore. <laughs> like, you know, but what do I have for visual information? Anubis's mothership is destroyed. I have Anubis going, no. I'm assuming he's gonna go like ascended or something because he's half ascended. Maybe that's how he gets out. Maybe he has an escape pod. I don't know. Um We've got uh, we got O'Neill stuck in a frozen pod. We haven't found the lost city yet. We found yet another outpost. Where is this thing? Um, now the ancient knowledge is now locked inside a, a freezer right now. Um, we had a fantastic, fun space battle. We had uh, the um, advancement of the story in so much as 
you know, we got a hold of some information and clearly there's much more ancient stuff on Earth than we thought. And that's fun. Oh, yeah, it does bring up the question. So wait a minute, like bringing it back to the symbols. The symbol for Earth is a pyramid with a sun on top of it. Did the ancients build the pyramids? I thought that Ra built the pyramids. I thought that it was so that he could land his motherships. And fine, the ghoul would have pyramids and all pyramidy shaped motherships so that they can land on pyramids, I guess. Um, so then did they literally just wholesale steal that technology? Possible. Possible, right? Is it that the ghoul would uh, basically took over all ancient technology? I mean, yeah, we got it. They, they, they commandeered the gate. They, they commandeered the use of all this tech. But it hasn't quite been said quite that explicitly yet. And what does that imply? Did the ghoul would like defeat the ancients? And how did what's going on here? And so I've got a <laughs> so that middle part right there with the whole syllabary, like absolutely just takes a knife and slices an Achilles heel, even though it's a disgusting metaphor. Like it's it's a hard one. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. So maybe I just have to ignore that. Maybe I just have to forget that even happened. And Acknowledge that they got they were sent on a goose chase that was not really a goose chase, right? Because the battery mattered, and uh, big time. And they the the goose chase sent them back to Earth, and that wasn't really a goose chase because that battery then is in like a planetary defense thing, which is cool, super super cool. And you know where else are there things like that on Earth? But we still don't know where the stupid lost city is. We don't even know if it's you know we thought it was lost to fire. No, that's not it. And then oh, it's on Earth maybe. And how how much further along have we gotten? So now we're into the zone of disappointment because. I thought this was going to be a springboard for the show Atlantis. Now, I get it. It's still going to be. I get it. And the show Atlantis is going to be talking about this somehow. And SG-1's probably going to be talking about this somehow, too. So in that regard, I'm like, sure, I'm on board for this. But, I mean, I guess? Suppose? This is all right. I had fun. I really did like a lot of parts about it. But I'm not actually sure I liked the story all that much. It was fine. But it was it was kind of eh, sure. OK, so I'm kind of in the middle right now. <laughs> I'm like, sure, this was cool. But um, I mean, other than other than 80 minutes of TV and a fun space battle and we lost O'Neill and we don't really have much more ancient knowledge uh, and we defeated Anubis. I mean, that's big. But did we win? Is that it? Like. Is now Ball going to be a decent, like, are we, have we reset back to season one? So that's kind of, and again, I I know more, but the reason I know more is because there's going to be a seasons eight, nine, and 10 of SG-1, and there's going to be a bunch of seasons of Atlantis. And, but that doesn't, that feels like cheating. <laughs> like, like, I'm not supposed to know that. I'm supposed to be where I am in this show and where I am in this show. It's like, oh, okay. All right. I guess there's going to be a casting change next season. Fine. Um, like, because, you know, apparently RDA's out. That's okay. Uh, maybe he'll be back for some guest appearances because we locked him up in a freezer. Sure. Uh, Anubis is not going to be a problem anymore. Go Earth. So, you know, what's this What's this Atlantis show that's been promised? What's that going to be about? We haven't yet found this place. Maybe the show Atlantis is going to be about finding the city of Atlantis. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, okay. It's fun. That's kind of where I'm at. What do you think about this episode? Um. Let me answer that question, but I need to get my cat down for a moment. I'll be okay. Back. 
Vala like to jump up on top of the cabinet. <laughs> and Can't then get down like... anymore. <laughs> so she got as far as the, the top of the refrigerator and she's like, uh-huh. help me. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, what do I think? So, A, I love this episode. I think it is exciting. I remember the first time watching this, um, that moment when the F-302s fly through Antarctica. I'm like, holy smokes, we've got a fleet of F-302s. Oh, yeah. Um, was super duper exciting um, and, and such. Um, here's my take on the basic story. Um, we have a search for the lost city. We discover that there's an ancient repository of knowledge and that if we can go there, we can find the information for the lost city. Why are we looking for the lost city? Because we think that it's going to have what we need to stop Anubis. That's what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. We're looking for the lost city and we want to find the lost city, but we also have Anubis as a, an immediate threat. Yes. All of this is downloaded into O'Neill's head. And so everybody is thinking, hey, O'Neill is going to take us to the Lost City because that's where we're going to go. O'Neill is going to take us to the Lost City. O'Neill takes us to Proclarouche Teonas. And then they find out, oh, wait a second. What's this? Well, we need to... Is the Lost City here? Nope. Nope. Oh, wait. Where's the Lost City? Oh, it's back on Earth. Well, that's fine. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does make sense to a certain degree. Um... We've seen evidence already that um, Earth is a place where the ancients uh, found a home. Yes. Long, long time ago. So if there is a lost city, it being back on Earth is plausible. Plausible. Right? I mean, we can... uh, The galaxy is a very big place, though. Sure. Uh, But from the very beginning, we established that the human form evolved first on Earth, and then it was seated across the galaxy. That's right. Um, which, if this is not the first iteration of this form, the ancients were, um, then that's right. It makes sense that that the ancients would have been on Earth as one of their, at least one of their primary places on the planet or in which the galaxy. I can I can accept, right? Even though that's tropey, I can accept it. Uh, it may be tropey, but it was already established earlier on. Now we're just seeing it come to fruition. Yeah. Um, and so given that it was established early on, now we're seeing that develop. However, when we get to Earth, what we find out is that what we found wasn't actually the Lost City. We found another outpost like they found on Proclamouche Teonas. Mm-hmm. However, uh, that is less important in the immediate uh, situation because what we, what we needed was something to stop Anubis. Right. And there was this outpost on Earth. Yeah, we got uh, it. That saves the day. Yep. So, but we don't have the lost city now. We're still looking for the lost city. How are we going to find it? Well, I don't know. Uh, that's for next season's springboard. Yes. Um, I don't, I'm a little confused by your uh, uh, disgruntlement, for lack of a better term, on the syllabary. Yeah. Um, I don't, I mean, so... It doesn't make sense that Proclarus Teonius means like destroyed in fire or something like that, uh, right. because that would have been named that prior to, uh, you know, like while the ancients were using that and it wasn't destroyed in fire at that point in time. Um, 
Now, the the writers of this episode acknowledge that that is kind of a plot hole, but then, you know, you run with it because that's what you do with stories. Well, and, and again, you do it in a movie, right? You just bounce right over the top of that and keep going. You know, um, uh, this... Uh, so you bounce... But, but there's no reason why uh, the symbols couldn't be both... Uh, you I seem mean, to think that that it's both. weird that it's one and not it's it's it it should be one and not the other. It's both. Um, so my hang up on that one is no, it's either one or the other, and uh, the reason why is because I was led to believe that they were literally coordinates, like numbers, and you don't name your planets, like you know you know, Arby's chicken sandwich. And then you go there and you find a bunch of Arby's chicken sandwiches there. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, you name your planets to be descriptors or names or whatever. And it makes sense either that you dial the name that makes sense, right? Dial the name or it makes sense that you dial the coordinates. Either one works, but it doesn't make sense if it's both that the coordinates is the name. So that's where I would disagree. I think it. I think it can make sense, and I don't have the the disconnect that you are having in that spot. Um, right. I will uh, grant you that naming this particular planet destroyed by fire uh, is a plot hole. Um, and since spoiler alert, we're never going to go to Proclarouche Teonas again. <laughs> um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Acknowledged. And again, like. As I mentioned, I think I might have to just let it go. I mean, I hear what you're saying. I get it, and I disagree. But I mean, but I, I I appreciate that I'm being a weird stickler on the thing. And so, like, am I gonna absolutely like hang the whole thing on that? No, I'm not. But it was a piece of like, no, everything kind of has to come together on this episode for it to kind of really work. Because that's the point. We were driving. We were pulling. We were pulling references from for for many seasons worth of stuff. We were pulling in every aspect of ancient anything that we have been kind of coming along almost the top the whole way and putting it here to great effect. And I was expecting maybe that was it. I had, I had higher expectations. That could be it. So, I mean, personally on, on that topic, I love the idea that they draw in uh, one of my critiques of Star Trek has always been that more or less at the end of an episode and the beginning of the next uh, it resets back to wherever it was before. Yeah. Yesterday's episode doesn't matter for today's story. And even more so, you know, th- the story from three or four or five years ago has zero effect on anything that's happening right now. But mm-hmm. SG-1 is different. What we have learned in the past plays into what we do now, and things grow and develop. Mm-hmm. And I love that about this. And this episode brings that in... Uh, for me, in a very rewarding way. Um, I would agree that I... So from my outside perspective, looking at you and your reaction to this, um, I wonder, and maybe you can help me with this, if the... So, like, you can't help but know that this episode is a beloved episode by Stargate fans across the globe. Sure. You knew that going into this episode. I had a strong inclination, yeah. Um, and my my feeling as I listened to that, coupled with your intentionality to be a critic, uh, and I don't use that in a negative word, right? I'm, no, I know what you're saying. Right. Yeah. 
uh, of this, because that's what this podcast is kind of about, uh, merge together in such a way um, that is shaping the way you see this. Yeah. No, I mean, yes. Um, yes, acknowledged. Uh, the The reason why I'm feeling kind of harsh about this episode is because... Um, because the, um, well, I mean, okay. Yeah. I, I, you know, as I, as I reflect on that, I think I have to acknowledge that, um, that, uh, it's possible that I would have enjoyed this episode more if I were binging the show. Hmm. Uh, and it's possible that I would have enjoyed this episode more if I had watched it in real time and I didn't know what the future held at all. Uh, you know, I do my very, 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 very best to kind of try to see it through the lens of your average viewer at the time. And your average viewer at the time probably was aware that there was a Stargate Atlantis coming out. And they probably were aware that there was a season seven coming out. Season eight. And season eight, thank you. Um, they probably were less aware or not at all aware that this was a, a movie plot. Because unless you are like reading the Stargate magazine, you wouldn't know that. Um, and so, and your average viewer, did they, they, yeah, they aired this over two weeks. Your average viewer watched one episode and then the next. Um, and so between all of that, I'm like, I, I, this was definitely a strong episode, but, um, was it, um, you know, was it a nine Chevron episode? Ha! Right now, there's a whole lot of people that are like, oh, man, you guys are going to give it nines. Yeah. And I think that's where the fandom is starting to kind of creep in, where all the years of the fandom start to echo on itself. Is this episode worth nine chevrons? I don't know. Maybe when I get to the end of the series, when I get to the end of all of Stargate, um, there have been episodes in our past. I remember when we watched the fifth race. I remember that I gave it seven because it was really groundbreaking. And you said, I'm going to give it eight. And the biggest reason why that you didn't, that you alluded to, but didn't quite say was how important that episode was. I had no way to know that. And now looking back, I'm like, yeah, this is a bit that, you know, fifth race was a huge deal, right? There's a whole lot about future story that really depends on that episode. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was a fun episode and it, you know, and it actually, frankly, it's, this is the, this is part two, <laughs> this is fifth race part two, um, <laughs> right? part two. Well, yeah, right. And and so, you know, and so in that regard, like I could I, I I absolutely understood what you were doing and I respected it for sure, but I couldn't do that. I couldn't follow you there because I didn't know. And I'm not going to trust the fandom, right? I think fandoms get things wrong all the time. All the time. All the time. And when I look at it as a piece of art and a piece of storytelling uh and a piece of adventure, and a piece of television, then I have different ways to kind of look at the thing. And whenever all of those types of lenses coalesce into, into a harmonious whole, holy cow, do you have, it's, it's wonderful. We gush about those moments. I don't know if this thing does that. And 
it makes sense why it doesn't do that. Again, this was supposed to be a movie. When you go to the movie theater and you stand in line and you got your anticipation and you were staring at that movie poster for the whole time and you get your popcorn and you get your soda and you go sit down and you're just getting in and you're sitting and you sometimes, you know, you're with friends that you want to watch the thing with. And you're all pretty excited, but the whole room has kind of an energy of like, okay, we're going to do this. And then you watch some previews that are generally related to the genre that you're watching and you're like, get over with the, but the previews are kind of still setting the tone, right? Then the light lights go down and then the music swells and then the credit you know or however they're choosing to do it they get you into the zone and now you're in the zone and now you're on a ride your story is going along and sometimes it does whatever you know films do all sorts of crazy things but you know i'm getting at like you go along the journey that the film wants you to go along and there was so much about these two television episodes which i could see work really well in a film you could have the disruption of uh, leadership. You could have, you know, the backstory of the individual who's being basically thrust into the command of this thing. You can have the tension that people have with that individual. You can let it bubble to the surface, but you have the opportunities to get the beats just right so that you're not sitting there going, well, that was a little bit weird or that was a little bit overgrading or, you know, you can, you can finesse it. You can get it real nice, like perfect. And then you go into the then you go into the to, to the middle part of the story where the threat starts to rise right and then you had anubis coming by and and you know why didn't he attack the cities it was said right in the episode it seems weird that he didn't um he went after a a a, a naval fleet in the indian ocean like what <laughs> i mean okay um he went after communications and power that made way more sense like there was parts about it that were starting to work but if you were again in Movieville, you could you could do a bit more with that. You could have a bit more explanation as to the as to the calculation, the cal- the calculative nature of Anubis, perhaps, or something, or maybe there was something else that he was. Whatever you could you could expand it, and you didn't have the ability to expand it in this storytelling. So, what do I have? I have two episodes that I watched all together. It tells a single story. The story does move the meta narrative along, but it leaves us without our goal. And we're down a person, but we're down an enemy. And we clearly have some more ancient stuff on Earth. So that's exciting. There's a whole lot in here that's exciting. And it does make sense for a springboard. But I haven't had a conclusion yet. There is no catharsis here. I had a big battle in the in Antarctica. Convenient. <laughs> and it was cool. It was visually amazing. And it felt wonderful. That rush of having Hammond at the helm and seeing the entire Air Force, th- you know, 3 whatever fleet go straight at the teeth of uh, of Anubis's um, uh, scouting party or whatever that came down to, 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 to kick our butts. That was great seriously great and that suicide run up in there was was heroic and completely in keeping with general george hammond right like everything about this moment was perfect that moment was perfect that was a perfect moment but it wasn't the whole show that was a perfect moment and it was a big deal but it wasn't the whole show and not only is it not a whole episode but it's not the whole series so where's my climax and release uh i don't have it yet right We got a lot of cool things that just got set up, a ton of cool things that just got set up. And in the same way that you watch The Fifth Race and you're like, this is an eight Chevron show or episode, I might come back and be like, holy cow, man, none of Atlantis would have made sense. And the entire, you know, the the, the back third of 
of of SG one would have been a complete boring disaster. Like you know what I mean? Like I I appreciate where it could be, but it's not there for me right now. Hmm. It's not there, and so I can't lie and go, "Wow, man, so cool." I have to be honest and be like, "Okay, I guess it's cool, but I gotta wait to see." So it's not quite there for me. Hmm. Yeah. Um. I as you were talking, I was trying to think about you know sift through all of the times i've seen this episode and i like this episode more and more every time i watch it i think i i yeah um but i'm trying to go back to when i saw it the first time um <clears throat> i am let's see here this would have been you said march 2000 march 2000 i would have been when did, when did we get back from august of 5 2000 i was still in japan i'm pretty certain pretty mm-hmm. sure i was still in, in japan at this point in time so I'm in Japan. Um, I don't get a chance to watch this live, live, um, because I don't have access to it live, live. But I have access to it um, virtually immediately through the powers of the internet. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I would have watched this episode um, close to the same time it came out. Um, probably, um, I can't be for certain. But there's a good chance that I watched both these episodes more or less back to back. Sure. Yeah. Um, I can't remember for sure. Um, I remember, I know that like, upon watching this episode, I knew that uh, Don S. Davis was leaving the show. Mm-hmm. And that some of this episode was that. I knew that this episode was um, shaking things up because there were going to be changes because Don S. Davis was leaving the show. Um, I knew that Atlantis was starting, was going to start in the fall or whenever mm-hmm. it did start. Um, I knew that Atlantis was going to be about the lost city. Um, I didn't know anything about the plot line of that. So I didn't know exactly where they were going. Obviously, they knew where they were going, but I didn't know where they were going with Atlantis, uh, at this point in time. Um... I knew that this was the season finale, and it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, I remember watching this as if it was a movie, right? I mean, that, that, that's that's kind of how. Um, I don't remember if I knew that it was supposed to. It, it was originally the the story was originally a movie or not. I can't remember when that came in to my brain, but the to to watch this as more than just an episode of television but to see the elements of a movie pour into this mhm um and keep in mind that in 2004 while you know the amount of money that was being poured into television series relative to movies was um you know was growing right uh the quality of a television production especially nowadays, is kind of expected to uh, be on par with the quality of movies. Yeah. Even now. Um, that wasn't the case in 2004 yet. Right. But it was moving in that way. Right. Um, and so to see that was astounding. Um, you know, we had never seen anything like that space battle on, over Antarctica. Yep. Uh, really, in TV. Up to that point, you know, the best we got was bad CG from Babylon 5. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I mean, we did get some some space battles with uh, the Dominion War, but most of those, you know, in, in Deep Space Nine. Um, but so you know, I, I'm trying to. I don't know what this tells me or what this does for me, but uh, you know, the the quality of movie. I think you know the design of this being a uh, almost a made for TV movie, right? Which is even more than just a simple made for TV movie. Um, is part of this episode. Um, and yeah, I can't take out the fact that I, like I said, I, I've seen this episode tons and tons of times. And the the more I see this episode and watch it knowing the future, which is something that you can't know, because mm-hmm. um, you haven't gone through it yet. Um, yeah, I, I remember that when this episode first came out, I thought this was awesome. I thought this was mm-hmm. amazing. Uh, I thought that this was um, something unique. Uh, did I think this was the epitome of all things Stargate? Well, I probably didn't think that at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I I didn't know. Um, that's where I was. So I don't know. And it also go ahead. It also occur. It also occurs to me that um, oh shoot, I had a half a thought, but I was I was listening. <laughs> I was actively listening, Zach. Good. That's good. <laughs> um, I think part of, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I also think that there's another, you know, there's another piece of the puzzle on here too, which is that, um, uh, that, that, um, I, I, I think that that sense of wonderment that I might be missing that sense of, of wonderment and it might've been present. I remember, um, watching Firefly at your behest and I just tore through those DVDs. Just tore through them. Uh-huh. Um, and to this day, stand by how I really, really like Firefly. But the catch, though, is that I've only ever watched that show once. Like, I've seen the movie a few times. Um, there's been, you know, when they were doing the special screenings and such uh, mm-hmm. afterwards. But mm-hmm. um, I've only ever watched Firefly once. Um, and so, like... I don't know if if I rewatched it now, if I would adore it as much as I did at the time. Um, and it's a function of where I was and who I was. And, you know, the, those those things have changed. And so, um, you know, not uh, not saying that this show is uh, is incapable of delighting me. Well, I mean, but you know what, though? What are the things that I really, really, really like about this show? It's when they get all political or philosophical, Right. Whenever they tear open a question that they can't answer and they know they can't, and so they don't, so they so they give it good service and they kind of move. I love those, love them. Um, you know, when 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 the when the adventure picks up, I I'm there for it and it's cool. Um, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't it doesn't push the buttons the same way as some of the other aspects of science fiction do. And I've said this from the, said this from the beginning. The thing I love the most about science fiction is its ability to examine society where it is at the time. And ask hard questions, but in a framework that allows people to disengage from the question a little bit so that they can think about it a little bit more objectively. It frames it up slightly differently or very differently in some cases. gets you to think about it. I'm remembering about how you and I were talking about the light. And we didn't really like that episode very much until we got a uh, uh, listener, Ed, I think, his, fe- Ed, I think? Um, his feedback uh, talking about how it kind of hits different when you're the kid of parents who have drug abuse problems. Mm-hmm. And right. Like it was like, Oh man, good point. Um, and so what, you know, this, this episode is a fan favorite 
this episode is is one of uh, is one that you very much like to enjoy and you said it every time you watch it you like it a little bit more and i think that's what this is you know i i can see that oh yeah i'm remembering my half thought Hey, Zach, am I ready to stop this podcast and hang up the whole thing? No, I want to watch the next episode. <laughs> like, we've got a long wait ahead of us for life reasons, and I'm going to be ready to go. Like, I want to see the next episode now. I want to see where this story is going now. So in that respect, that's great. That's really, really good. It's engagement. You know, the engagement is, is off the charts right now. But when I think about it in the framework of, the story individually and in the context of the grand story overall how do i feel about it i'm ready to be impressed and i'm not quite there yet there's parts about it that are very impressive including that space battle uh, or the the antarctic battle and the space battle um and it's tons of commanding performances and tons of wonderful moments i was laughing so hard with you know, Tilk is so deep. <laughs> like, <laughs> say something deep. <laughs> my my death has is irrelevant to this conversation. You see, like that was really good. And and how the characters interplayed with their with how the actors interplayed with their characters and their roles was wonderful. And how it all coalesced was 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 great. It was good. It was very 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 good. And at no point was it a big pain in the butt. Except for my syllabary criticism, which mattered to me. But you know what? I'm being a nerd, so I'm going to let that one go. Um, and then we had this, this this tremendous moment, and we had a half resolution. And I'm okay with half resolutions, especially when it leads on to something more. But, you know, where am I at right now? I, I'm definitely, like, fists clenched, eyes wide open, looking side to side, going, okay, and now what? And so... I think to all of you who look at this episode and go, this episode is amazing. I think it's because you have satiated that and now what thing. And I haven't. Right. And so, you know, and now what I don't. And so I'm sitting here going, okay, that happened. And it was really cool. But it's a different feeling than that feeling when you sit back after having watched a complete story, (laughs) beginning, middle and end. And go, wow, was that an amazing story. Mm -hmm. So I was just thinking a couple of things. One, as I was finishing this episode and I was looking at, um, you know, when when you finish an episode on Netflix, uh, you can stop it before the next one automatically starts, but then it sets that up so you can see the title of it and blah, 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 all that stuff. And I was looking at the title for the first episode of season eight and I was looking at it like, oh yeah, okay. I remember some of this stuff. I'm like, I can't remember all of the details of that episode. Yeah. Um, now, I remember kind of what happens in general um, and and such. But I was, as when I think about this episode here, though, is that this episode does precisely what a season finale should do when uh, they're, they know they're coming back. Yes. This episode does give you a conclusion. This yeah. episode sees the defeat, apparently, of Anubis. Yep. yep, yep. Uh, we will have to wait and see to see if this was a temporary defeat or a permanent defeat. We don't know yet. Right. But for right now, we saw the defeat of Anubis. We saw that they now have this awesome, amazing space gun under the ice crust of Antarctica. Yes. That is cool. 
Yes. At the same time, we also have our hero, the guy, top of the billing guy, stuck in a stasis pod. Yes. At the end of this episode, and we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. But all, we know that if they like. turn that off, he's going to die. Sure. Um, I want to know what happens. Yes, me too. Right? So, so this is an episode that both gives you, at least gives me, a satisfying epic conclusion. Hey, we just did something cool. And it puts a giant ellipsis that says, come back next time. Yep. Which I think is also one of those things um, that, that I think is really good about the storytelling in this episode. Is that it builds up to this point where we have both a conclusion where it's not a to-be-continued story. It, it's not a story that says, uh, you know, it's not like Best of Both Worlds in Star Trek Next Generation Season right. 3, where right. you have Mr. Worf, fire, and don't, yes. don't, 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 you know. I mean, that's a to-be-continued story. Yes. That's bringing you up, I mean, that brings you up to to a, you know, conclusion moment, but it does not have any release whatsoever. It right. leaves you in that tension. Holy smokes, did that do a good job in that episode. Yes, it sure did. Um, this episode doesn't do that. It's not designed to do that. Uh, this episode comes and uh, does give you a conclusion. This is the end of the story. But it also is a springboard, which is yep. really remarkable. Um, and I find that delightful. Yeah, sure. All right. We could continue, but we need oh, to boy. continue. Yes. And also, you know, I mean, I know you know, and I know the listeners will appreciate, but like, you know, it's getting on in the day and I, I just got, I got things going on and I yep. know there was probably a lot of people that want to say a whole lot. So we should motor. So we, we have a uh, time for, now it's time for, I, I was just going to jump straight to predictions <laughs> before we not do quite. that. Not um, quite. Not quite. How many chevrons are you going to give Lost City? All right, so friends, you're sitting here and you're listening to me go on and on and on, and you're like, this dude's about to give it a five. This guy is about to give it a five. Can you believe this? And you're about to like text your friends. You got to listen to this episode. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's going to give Lost City Parts 1 and 2 five out of seven chevrons. That's stupid. Hey, I got good news for you, friends. I know you all want me to give it like nine or eight chevrons. I know you do. So it's resetting the scale in a matter of speaking. I'm giving this one seven out of seven. Why after being such a jerk about it, am I giving it a full seven out of seven? Well, partly it's a little bit of the conversation, frankly, but also because I know that there's more to it and I want to see what's going to happen next. But is this a complete story? No, no, it's not. And if I watch this again and again and again after time, after watching the whole series, I might like it more and more and more. It might turn into an eight out of seven. It might turn into a nine out of seven, but it's not there for me now. For me now, it's seven out of seven. So what about you, Zach? What'd you think? So wrong, wrong phrase. How many do you give it? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I feel the pressure from the fan base <laughs> to give this nine chevrons. Um, <laughs> you know what being honest about it that's good that's good that's good right <laughs> um the the place i i i'm struggling because um even within story 
We haven't established nine chevrons as a thing even yet. No, we haven't. Uh, So the idea of giving this nine chevrons is because the fan base knows that the ninth chevron does exist. So strike that. Nine is impossible. Now your choices are eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. You can give it a one. You could do that. Oh, it's it's not a one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, on the flip side, I I I don't know what to give this episode. Interesting. Um, because so so this episode deserves the top spot. Okay. This episode deserves the top spot. Um. And now I have to figure out what the top spot is. Is the top spot actually nine chevrons? Because that's a theoretical possibility. Uh, is the top spot eight chevrons? Because we've established that. Um, I think I have a solution for you. Okay. I think you want to give this eight plus one. And you want to phrase it like that. You want to say it like, this is super good and more. I can do that. Okay. I, I, I feel... <laughs> I honest, I don't feel like I should give this episode uh, nine chevrons because we haven't experienced nine chevrons I yet. I agree. I agree. And also knowing that we won't really hear anything about nine chevrons until about halfway through Atlantis, as far as Fine. I can remember. So we and are it's not off. even until uh, Universe that it really becomes like an actual thing. Yeah, so it, okay. it's out there. So I'm going to give this an eight- Plus one. <laughs> Meanwhile, a whole lot of people are like, you guys are such pendants. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we are. Yeah. <laughs> it's yes, true. Yes. Um, I will acknowledge that if anybody out there uh, gives a prediction of nine chevrons from me, that will count as. Okay, fine. Ex- um, there, because nobody out there is going to think. He's going to give one. this eight plus one. No, no one's going to do. No one's going to think that. But that makes sense. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think it's time then, isn't it? It is time. Okay. Here we go. On the Twitters, we got Kevin. On the Twitters. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Kevin just launches right into it. I might be busy packing, but I can't pass up an opportunity to say that I hope you had a great time. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Adrian. Hi, Adrian. Says this is it. The episode. The episode's meant as a movie. I think Brent will give it eight. Then Zach, nine. So, yep, Adrian got you. This will confuse Brent, who will then change his rating to nine. No, I won't. For me, this episode becomes an eight when O'Neill uses the repository and a nine when the when Braytech warns that there are ships coming from both sides. That was a, that was a fantastic moment. That, that was, was. That, that, that moment was. was so good. We got Jacob. Hi, Jacob. Hi, Jacob. We got, uh, hi, this is a proper finale episode, or episodes. I predict both of you will take... Uh, will like it more than any other episode this season. Eight and eight chevrons. I also predict that David predicts a total of 17 chevrons for this episode, which would be nine and eight. Yeah, okay. Uh, And then we got Lori. Hi, Lori. Hi, Lori. Lori says all of them, all the chevrons, which I guess technically is correct for me. Uh, Two fantastic episodes. Oh, awesome. So that was Twitter. So thank you, everybody. All right. Twitters. Well, on Facebook, we start with Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Jeremy says, I've been listening to you guys for about a year and a half now, and I have been waiting this whole time for the next episode. It is one of my favorite episodes in all the series. I'm excited to hear what Brent thinks (laughs) of this one. (laughs) 
Sorry. <laughs> so, Hopefully my critiqueness is not... Anyway, carry on. Sorry. Uh, anyway, welcome, Jeremy. Thanks for yes, writing in. Uh, he says, I give it nine out of seven, but mm-hmm. I did watch it when it aired, and it was even better then. Uh, okay, that's good help. That's good Good. Right. Good context. Uh, awesome. We have Thanks, Adrian. Hi, Adrian. Says, this is a brilliant two-parter. My girlfriend, who doesn't like sci-fi, watched Stargate to humor me, so I would watch her shows almost jumped out of her seat and yelled, Yes! When the Prometheus came in and positioned itself over them. Yep. For that reason alone, this one is a nine and makes the clip shows worthwhile. (laughs) I'm struggling not to predict ten, to be fair, as this is about as good as TV gets. Nice. Um... Let's see here. Da 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 Okay, we'll skip all of those. Uh, so, Jen says... Hi, Jen. Lost City is among the episodes that I would put in my... Uh, put on my telly just to enjoy my favorite heroes do what they do best mm-hmm. while pulling out my heartstrings perfectly. There are too many iconic moments to count. The crossword, the team night... Awkward flirting, national treasures, if not national resources. Mm-hmm. Moments of true camaraderie, like when a clearly very distraught Teal'c is comforted by a nonverbal O'Neill, simply by a gesture of pure friendship and love. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, did anyone else notice that Jack was actually pulling a Han Solo on Sam with his I know? Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. Totally. And then he got frozen in carbonite. Yep. Yep. Um... Also, her emotional desperation at the end uh, really tugged at my heartstrings. Mm-hmm. And O'Neill staring blankly through his friends as an unknown event, as an unknown future awaits him, and the screen cuts to black. Mm-hmm. So many loose threads that need to be addressed in season eight. What will happen to Jack? Where is Atlantis now? Is Anubis really gone? Uh, what will happen in the Stargate to the Stargate program? Is Hammond really gone? Despite knowing the future, I'm still left with these questions after the finale. Mm-hmm. The story was so captivating that it makes me immediately forget about any flaws. There is only one thing missing, which would be a heartfelt yee-haw from Hammond while commanding <laughs> the Prometheus as the knight in shining armor heading to SG-1's rescue. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, Don S. Davis did a tremendous job with his character, and he is missed dearly uh, mm. still today. As much as I am sad about Hammond being promoted, I really do like Elizabeth Weir as a character and enjoy the actress portraying her for Lost City. I still feel it a bit unrealistic for her to actually be appointed the position of leadership of the SGC without any appropriate training for the job. As mentioned above, I love this two-parter to the same amount as I love the Heroes two-parter, so it's eight chevrons for me. Mm. Brent will give this eight chevrons as well because this actually is the height of television, and Zach (laughs) will give this nine chevrons because this is the starting point for another series in the Stargate universe. Sure. Lost City is a series-altering two-parter with immense consequences for the rest of the series. Awesome. That is also true. Susan says... Hi, Susan. SG-1 at its best. This brilliant two-parter deserves a theoretical nine chevron rating from everyone. Very good. Um, we have Fraser. Hi, Fraser. Fraser's uh, also new. Let's see here. He says it's Kia Ora, Brent, and Zach from New Zealand. So either Kia Ora is a weird typo or it's something New Zealandish, and I don't get it. 
<laughs> what was the phrase again? Kia Aura. Could be. It's probably a, It's probably something. Yeah. Uh, so, Fraser, please let me know. Yes. Um, I would love to know. Probably means hello. Or it, it could also be hello that has a weird typo that in it that does something weird. Um, I don't know. But whatever it is, awesome. So, Fraser says, uh, been listening to you guys for a while now, but still got a tad bit of catching up to do. Currently on season six, episode 125. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just had to jump ahead for this episode. So, welcome, Fraser. Thanks for listening. Yes, welcome. In a lot of ways, this is a culmination of everything SG-1 has been preparing so far. This two-parter is full of adventure, action, comedy, and some very serious moments, too. As we know what happened last time, the impact of O'Neill taking on the ancient repository again hits all that harder, and this time the Asgard don't seem to be answering to help. Mm-hmm. Of course, Kinsey thinks this is the perfect time to wrestle control of SG-1 away from the Air Force with the help of Dr. Weir, but as always, this backfires on him, too. Dr. Weir is honestly an amazing character to introduce here, and the only downside is... Brent, feel free to skip this if it's too spoilery. (laughs) Uh, Okay, yep, so other downside, we'll skip that for now. SG-1 gets some really touching moments throughout this adventure, and the actors all play them beautifully. All in all, I think this two-parter is some of, if not the best episodes of SG-1 in all aspects, writing, actoring, and visuals. Mm-hmm. We even get an awesome spaceship battle. If we're using them, if we're using them, this has to be nine chevrons for both Zack and Brent. <laughs> Though, if it isn't in use yet, I'll settle for eights all around. Definitely a nine for me. Uh, sure. Uh, for all the work you both are doing in this, and I look forward to hopefully being up to date before you finish season 10. Very, <laughs> well, you're only about 20, you're 20 some episodes off. You're, 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 you'll, you'll catch up. Well, he, yeah, yeah, you'll probably catch up. Uh, he says, gay mihi Fraser, uh, yep. which is certainly a New Zealander thing. Yes. Um, help me, and I apologize if I, Butchered all of those words. Uh, help me out on that, please. P.S. O'Neill saying to Hammond, I did it again while walking down the Stargate and making a beeline for Sick Bay is just comedy gold every yes, time. Yes, that was good. Yep. Um, da, 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 da. David said, This is from David. Mm-hmm. He says, This is David from the present updating my email that is in your future but my past. This episode is a prime example of what the SG program is about. Travel the galaxy to find things to defend us from our enemies. Existence justified. See you in the future. (laughs) Isn't writing fun? Oh, yeah. Uh, Rowan says. Hi, Rowan. Sometimes you've just got to let an alien device grab hold of your head and fill it with information. Apparently. But don't worry, we've been here before. When Jack starts losing coherence, they can just text their old buddy Thor to come give him a brain cleanse. And if not, <laughs> well, they have all the resources of the Stargate program at their disposal. Maybe. Uh, enter Dr. Elizabeth Weir, the new civilian director of the SGC. Wait, two smart blonde women in one show? How's that gonna work? While Anubis is headed for Earth, SG-1 take a road trip to Lava World to pick up a fresh battery uh, for a magic recliner in Antarctica. (laughs) Also not Atlantis. 
As a firefight between the forces of Anubis and the U.S. Air Force breaks out over Antarctica, still not Atlantis, Jack unleashes a torrent of golden space squids, apparently programmed to only attack bad guys. Anubis is down! They've won! Hooray! Hooray! Kinsey is awarded a trip to the unemployment office, and Jack takes a well-earned nap. If any episode deserves eights all around, it's this two-parter. These episodes have IMDb ratings of 8.9 and 9.4, which is 6.5 and 7.5 chevrons, respectively, putting Mm. them both in the top 10 episodes of Stargate overall. Very good. Part two is the highest rated Stargate episode of all time after Window of Opportunity in season four. Wow. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Jen, we'll skip that. Tim says. Hi, Jim. I'm not sure what it was, but this most recent time watching these episodes, they did not uh, do for me like they have in the past. Mm. I think I will be the wet blanket of the group and only give them seven chevrons as a whole. Hey, Tim. No, I'm being very harsh. My yeah. guess is eight from Zach and seven from Brent. Hey, you got... Whoa! Oh, Tim, you, you get nine. a... Doop, 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 no, doop, dude, doop, doop, you said that. Oh, is eight plus one eight? I, I, I will count that. <laughs> if I count eight plus one nine, then I also have to give it you the get, eight. You get the doop doos <laughs> Well done, Tim. Awesome. Thanks, Tim. Uh, Lisa says... Hi, Lisa. Hi, Zach. Hi, Brent. What an awesome... What a, what a season finale. It literally has everything. Great story, great acting, great action, and even some Sam and Jack for us shippers. I'm saying nine chevrons all around. This truly is the height of TV. Smiley face. (laughs) I love that that phrase is like becoming a thing. The height of television. Uh, You do realize that you put that in the wrong episode. That's Bane. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. We have several emails. Yes. We'll start with Lydia Ann. Hi, Lydia Ann. Zach and Brent, the email contains... This email contains puns. President okay. Henry Hanks. <laughs> Wait, I, I spoke over top of you. What was that last right, part? Says, this email contains puns. Zach and Brent, this email contains puns. Signed, President Henry Hayes. Oh, I gotcha. Okay, fine. <laughs> Did you notice all the wordplay, the snappy and snippy dialogue in the episode? Dr. Elizabeth Weir spars with President Hayes in conversation, making her pretty darn smart. Yeah. Despite the fact that Stargate operations are on ice, SG-1 takes an interplanetary nice. road trip searching for the lost city. Mm-hmm. President Hayes tells Vice President Kinsey to get Frost. Get In frost. command of the Prometheus, General Hammond gets an ice of the action. Get a taste of the action? Ice, yeah. Uh, okay. Reclining in a chair and destroying a fleet of Google World ships is pretty chill. Jack ends up frozen in stasis, and the way the rest of SG-1 is looking at him really makes you believe in a crazy little thing, cold love. Cold love. In sum, for an episode titled Lost City that doesn't contain the Lost City, a nice reclining chair and matching set of drones are a cool participation trophy. (laughs) Yeah. This episode is always snow delightful to watch but is Mm -hmm. similar to heroes the pacing of first half is slower than the second it feels heavily edited in balancing story with time constraints Mm -hmm. i wonder if brent will mark it down for not actually containing the lost city after his comments in the previous episode Uh uh-huh she predicts 
Yeah. Brent will give this seven chevrons. Yeah. And Zach will give it eight chevrons. Okay, per the rules. Congratulations, Lydia Ann. Yeah. Until the next pun, Lydia Ann. Till the next one. All right. We have Ed. Hi, Ed. Uh, hi, guys. I've been behind on keeping up, but I saw the Lost City in ne- is next in line and had to make sure I get my prediction in. Nice. Well, I'm glad you're able to stay with us uh, and talk to us here. Okay, so he yeah, says, uh, there are some of my favorite episodes. These are some of my favorite episodes in the whole series. These two get an eight out of Severon and a yeehaw from both of you. <laughs> eight out of Severon? That works. Eight out of seven. <laughs> uh, I can't talk. It's fine, but fun. Okay, uh, yeah. All right, we've got Dan. Hi, Dan. Chevron six locked. We finally made it to the best episode of the series. It's crazy what you can get with a budget of a made-for-TV movie, isn't it? This episode Mm -hmm. has it all. A crazy stunt by Jack, foreign language learning, crossword puzzles, yet another Simpsons reference to, in fact, donuts, beer, human sacrifice, Mm -hmm. dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria! (laughs) Oh, I may have gotten a little carried away there. Wait, what do you mean that was only part one? Deep breath, Dan. <laughs> Am I the only one who cheered at least the first time I saw this in 2004 to see Hammond in command of Prometheus? No, yeah, no, you're not. I cheered. And to finally see Prometheus and the 302s in action, Chef's Kiss. Nope, no, no yes. you're not. Only issue I've ever had is a common complaint, but how did Weir get cell reception 27 floors underground? Oh, that's a good question. Well, they got a booster down there. Um... It's also possible that the the head the headset was uh, already connected to her other phone by that point in time. Um, True. That, that might be a little bit much for 2004, but maybe not. I don't know. Good good call. Uh, continue. We also get to see the repercussions of Hammond giving Woolsey the magical floppy disk. Yes. Chevron 7 locked. Uh-huh. Lessons to be learned. Number one, finishing crossword puzzles is a thing of pride. By all means, Jack... Finish that puzzle in your truck. Number two, Uma Thurman is a celestial body. Mm. Oh, no, no. Uma Thurman is a celestial body? Okay, I guess. 2004. 2004. Number three, Teal'c. Depth is certainly material to conversations. Super important. Of course, Mm -hmm. beer helps too. And donuts. Number four, Jack and Daniel's banter when trying to understand Jack's Ancient-y language is great. Following still you not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Number five. Thursday's no good for me either, Jack. Yeah, Thursdays are pretty busy for me. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Number six. Kinsey's upon's... Kinsey's upon's finale, finally comeuppance. I think Kinsey's comeuppance finally came. I think gotcha. that's just what that was supposed to be. Yep. All right, number, I'm sorry, Chevron 8 locked. Okay. Did I mention this is the best episode of the series? An argument could be made that this is the best episode of the franchise, but you guys still have a few more episodes to watch before you, we can have that discussion. To rate this episode anything less than an 8 would be Durantis. I, I mean, crazy, you know. I'm calling a 9. That's right, I said what I said. I've loved this episode <laughs> since the Friday night in 2004 it aired. And every rewatch I do, this is one of the few episodes I put the phone down and pay complete attention to. I'm betting nines all around, too. I'm 
curious how you guys are going to handle next season with Atlantis joining SG-1 and later Battlestar uh, and creating Sci-Fi Friday. Uh, gee, why didn't Dan get out of out much on Friday nights from 2004 to 2007? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I guess we'll find out later on. Take a break, fellows, and don't work too hard. <laughs> I appreciate the gesture. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, we have Dustin. Hi, Justin. Here it is. I, I think Dustin might, this might be the first email from Dustin. If it is, welcome. Thank you for oh, joining welcome, us. Dustin. Here it is, the greatest episode in all of Stargate. It has everything. Interesting story, new discoveries to expand the story, the beginning of Atlantis, lots of, lots of sparky Jack the galaxy's most high-tech recliner, tears, oh, the tears, and just amazing acting. Don't forget the epic space, not space battle. Rest in peace, Anubis. Thank goodness we won't have to see him again. Right. Don't forget Hammond bringing his trusted assistant, Chief Master Sergeant Walter Radar Harriman. I'm mm-hmm. so glad both of you have made it to the end of the most epic season and a phenomenal season finale. This is a perfect two-part episode, and I loved every second of it. I love the political tension between Dr. Weir and Kinsey. I love seeing General Hammond take a new command, uh, even though this is almost the end of Hammond on the show. Seeing Jack start to lose it and learning about new ancient technology is amazing. These two episodes, without doubt, reach the ninth Chevron level. As for Brent and Zach, I expect a nine from Zach, as he should uh, know and love what an amazing and crucial episode this is. And for Brent, I hope you had a perfect bagel this morning, because anything less than eight is unacceptable. It's unacceptable, That's then. unacceptable. I love everything you guys do and can't wait to finish out the rest of the series and start Atlantis. Also, what is the plan on the movies? Uh, are you watching no them before plan. or after Atlantis? Huge no idea. fan. Uh, Dustin, we will watch we'll, those we'll movies. The short answer is we'll watch those movies uh, when we get to them as appropriate. As I mentioned earlier, we are going to intersperse Atlantis and SG-1. And so at the appropriate time, we'll watch the movies. All right. We have Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Kevin, like, texted me and messaged me and emailed me and made sure that it was okay because he was going to be gone for all of this stuff right now. So so he wanted to make sure he had this in. So, Kevin, gotcha. I got your email. <laughs> What's Kevin got to say? Uh, Kevin has to say, hi, Zach. Hi, Brent. Hi, Kevin. And I need a drink of water. You can cut that if you want. Yeah, I will. You don't have to, but you can. (laughs) I probably won't know because I rarely listen to our episodes. That's all good. Anyway, uh, bet you're surprised I'm writing in this way instead of Facebook. By the time you're here, I'll be busy preparing for an intercontinental trip. So as soon as I finished my prediction for a week, uh, I started watching... uh, I started watching... Now, I think I finished my prediction for last week. I started watching Lost City so that I won't miss out on the episode that was going to be the series finale. And mm-hmm. what a finale it would have been. Heck, what a finale it was. While I was watching this epic two-parter, do you know what I did? Can you guess? I got my phone, opened up Samsung Notes, and jotted down a few things while watching the episodes. <laughs> so if that's what you guessed, you were right. Oh, I didn't even get it. <laughs> I didn't. Number one, really? A crossword puzzle clue about quirks? Not many people are going to know that. No. Number two, 
That Russian guy is a jerk. First he tries to steal her cab, then he starts yelling at her in Russian, not knowing that she speaks Russian, and then it turns out he speaks English after all. So he was just using Russian to pretend like he didn't understand and was hoping she would let it go. What a jerk. Big jerk. We get a major wood cameo in the elevator. Yep. That's true. Didn't That's like true. the didn't like that answer. No. Uh it's been a while since we get so it's been a while since we got a going through the wormhole effect. Nice to see that make an appearance. Number 5. I had to rewind and re-watch Colonel when no, blah, blah, blah. I had to rewind and rewatch when Colonel Reynolds was firing his gun after radioing SG-1. He looked ridiculous. He was firing it at shoulder height. No way he was able to aim that thing. And it wasn't even pointed up, which it would need to be if he was firing at the ships, which is the yeah. only thing he could have been firing at because I yeah. can't imagine any Jaffa ground troops with no. all those explosions going on. Fair enough. Number six. Now that Dr. Frazier is gone, who's running the infirmary? Is there anybody? Number seven. Question. Mm-hmm. Jack, if you're going to look at the sky and try to figure out how many stars you've been to, there are several problems. You might want to wait until night when the stars are visible, not broad daylight. The other is that if you had gone to a star with a stargate, you'd be dead. Stars don't have stargates on them. <laughs> Planets and moons do. But not the stars. You're into astronomy. You should know this. Number eight. Does Daniel make a habit of opening people's front doors uninvited? Doing that in a place like Texas could get you shot. You should be more careful. Well, fair enough. Number nine. Apparently, Daniel is a lightweight drinker. Yes. Uh, Number ten. Please sing the tune of Guess Who's Back by Eminem. I, I don't know the tune that, and I did. You mentioned that to me, and I didn't get a chance to listen to it, so I'll just read it. <laughs> You'll just have to imagine. <laughs> Somebody can cue it up, not me. <laughs> Guess who's back? Back again? Harax back? Tell a friend. Guess who's back? 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 Number eleven. Heck yeah, we have a tactical Hammond back, and now he's in charge of the Prometheus, and we even have Walter there too. Yep. All right. What an amazing episode. That is a worthy finale to take out Anubis. Brent might have been disappointed with the way Sokar was killed, and then very disappointed when Apophis was killed the second time, and basically every other ghoul that was foiled with some C4. But Anubis was the real deal and took the weapons of the ancients and the sacrifice of Anil to finally take him out. And I loved those few nice episodes of the episode of Carter and O'Neill because I ship them hard. Uh And my heart breaks every time I watch the episode and hear her call him Jack. I love this episode, and I can't imagine this not getting an eight or higher from you both. You want universe changing? This is it. This is in my top five favorite Stargate of all time across all five franchises SG-1, Atlantis Universe, Infinity, and Origins. Personally, this is a nine-chevron episode for me. Brent said that after Full Circle, it felt like we were starting a book. Well, this is definitely the end of that book. Gotcha. Nice. That's, that's, that's a fair comment there. And finally, we have David. Hi, David. This is the David from the past, from, you know, from our past. Yes. It was his future and such. Anyway, I don't remember what he said before. It doesn't matter. <laughs> 
the comment was in was his present. It was uh, the past in our show, but his email was in his past, but our future. Yes, now we're here. Yeah, it's yeah, our present. Yeah. Anyway, the lost Chevron encoding bias buffer was on Earth all along. All along. There are certain moments in TV shows and movies that make you stand up and cheer. Avengers Endgame, Avengers Assemble, Thor Ragnarok, Ragnarok, Thor Ragnarok, The Immigrant Song on the Bridge, Star Wars, The Death Star Blowing Up, Battlestar Galactica, The Galactica Jumping into New Caprica's Atmosphere, Aliens, Get Away From Here, You Beep, Game of Thrones, quite a few really, despite how all, it all ended. Um, I've never seen Game of Thrones, so I can't speak Ooh. to that. Who, there's there's somebody who has the best story of all, Zach. Oh, the best. No one has a better story than he. Okay. Yeah. All right. Carry on. All right. And this is one of them. The other ships are not Gua'uld. That was mm-hmm. a moment. And then you see him, the, the, the fleet coming out. That was a, yeah, type of moment. Mm-hmm. I, I grant mm-hmm. you that. I could go on and on about these two episodes, as I'm sure the two of you have as have all the people writing in. I'll leave it at this, though. I can watch the whole Battle of Antarctica over and over again and enjoy it every time. For me, that means that Chevron 9 is locked. That being said, I'm not positive Brent will agree with me. Eight Chevrons for sure, though. He nope. just has not <laughs> had that many years of letting this soak in and re-watching those scenes that most of us have had. Yep, and that's true. For Zach, nine chevrons. Not yeah. quite, but close. Yep, super close. And eight plus one is nine. Eight plus one is nine. Um, but uh, yep. Know, but eight plus one isn't exactly nine. Correct. I mean, it is, but it's not. It's equivalent. But not quite. But it's it a is little not. different. Yes. It is semantically different. Correct. Anyway, so Brent, those are yeah. our predictions and comments. Thank you, everybody, for writing in and letting us yes, know. Yes, thank you. Uh, normally this is when I say, Brent, our next episode is blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. that's when you tell me about blah, blah, blah. But since this is the finale and we're going to take some time off, uh, at some point in time in the next couple of months, we will have a recap episode that has yet to be scheduled. Um, during this time off, we're going to spend a little bit of time catching up on some of the Patreon stuff that we have not been able to do because May has been insane for both of us. Uh, frankly, April wasn't any easier either. No, not really. Um, so we will come back. Uh, I can't say exactly when we'll start season eight, uh, but that will come uh, at some point between uh, now and then. <laughs> I say for real, expected in the very late summer, early fall. Like, basically, imagine that we're going to take a summer vacation. That's yeah, probably the yeah, best way that, to think that, about it. that's fair. Uh, I'm not promising anything to you, but I know that David is working on some things that might yes, provide new and fresh things. content yes. for the podcast that is sec- tangential to the podcast, or maybe it's just sitting next to it. I don't know. Who knows? But uh, uh, he's working on that, and we'll see if that is able to come to fruition. And if it is, you'll all get to hear all that awesome stuff in your ear holes when it comes out throughout the summer. Yep. Um, 
with all that, uh, you know, let us know all your thoughts on everything. You can email us. You can Twitter us. You can Facebook us. You can Discord us. Discord is the place to be if you want to know and stay up to date with where things are and where things are going. That's when we'll be able to tell you first and foremost uh, for sure when we have figured out uh, when that recap is going to be and, and when we actually start Season 8 and the following. So mm-hmm. if you haven't joined us on Discord, now would be the time to do that. And Absolutely. with all of that... That's right. I say I'm Zach. And I'm Brent. And this has been Walking Through the Stargate. See you next time. Bye. Carter, dial it up. Get these people home.